Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the fifth episode of God's Socialist, the rise and fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Suicide Cult. If you haven't heard the previous episodes in this series, I highly recommend you go back and start with the prologue and work your way up from there chronologically. It's a very deep story and you'll get a lot more out of it if you start at the beginning. If you enjoy this series, please consider subscribing to my Substack page. It can be found at martyrmade.substack.com, where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes, including interviews, available to subscribers for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To those of you who are already contributing, I, I really appreciate you allowing me to do what I do here, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? I remember a while back, I was watching one of Jordan Peterson's lectures on the early books of the Bible. Now, I'm a fan of Peterson. I like him a lot. He seems to have mostly made it through the gauntlet of early controversy that engulfed him. But back in those early days, I mean, it was a hurricane. I don't know if you were paying attention. It was it was crazy. I happened to get turned on to him very early. I, I was actually one of his first $50 Patreon subscribers, which is brutal because the $50 level was supposed to get me a 30-minute Skype chat with him. But before I got that set up, I went overseas for work, and by the time I got back, He'd blown up and was inaccessible, so it was a missed opportunity there. But anyway, I was watching him from his earliest days that he came into the public consciousness, and it was fascinating to watch because you got to see this ordinary guy, you know, husband, father, teacher, very extraordinary guy in many ways, but a guy who had lived his life giving lectures to 20 or 30 freshmen at the University of Toronto, and suddenly he's this huge celebrity with this whole process of becoming this taking place in the public eye and not in a stage managed reality TV kind of way, but very raw. He would do these weekly videos where he would answer questions from people from, from fans. And you'd see that some weeks his health wasn't great. You know, he didn't look good. Other weeks he was clearly being bothered by the controversy and the attacks that were coming his way. And he never tried to play it off. Like he was, above being affected by it or anything. He was very open about how stressful and frightening it all was. I mean, he had major media publications and networks and social media mobs throwing anything that they could at him to try to take this guy down because, you know, it's a very polarized political environment and personal destruction is kind of the primary tactic right now. And you know, he'd been identified for reasons that were, in my opinion, for the most part unfair, but he'd been identified with a far-right political cause. And so he's just getting hammered 
You know, and just imagine yourself, you, whoever you are, normal person. And suddenly you've got the New York Times and BBC doing hit pieces on you. And, and not just to counter your arguments, but with the real goal of trying to get you fired from your job if they can. Destroying your life and your family's life if they can manage it. And we can imagine that, but it's very difficult to understand what that would be like. And at the same time that this is going on, he's developing this massive online following of people who... You know, they're not just fans. I mean, they, they've discovered his treasure trove psychology class lectures over the years. And, and while he's got these major media organizations trying to destroy him, he's got countless normal people off the street. Thousands, millions of people telling him that he has changed their lives forever. That, that, that he's changing the world for the better. And all of this is happening basically overnight. And you get to watch this guy try to manage that experience in real time. And, and so I'm following these lectures he's doing on the early books of the Bible, and he's putting out one each week, and I'm following them as they come out, because I knew that he'd been heavily influenced by a book that I really like called The Disappearance of God by Richard Elliott Friedman. And so he releases the fifth episode, which was supposed to be about the story of Cain and Abel. And at the beginning of the talk, you know, it's, it's before a studio audience. He's in like an auditorium with a, with a crowd. And so at the beginning of the talk, he's kind of getting things started, and he decides to read a letter to the crowd, a letter he had received from one of his supporters. And it's from a woman who had written to tell him about a vision that she'd had while she was on the psychedelic ayahuasca on a visit down in South America. And so he's going to read this letter to everybody. And so she explains that ayahuasca was traditionally considered female and that she had seen Jordan Peterson in her vision while she was tripping, right? And he's reading this letter in the theater to the crowd, which had come to hear him speak on the story of Cain and Abel. Quote, Dr. Peterson, you appeared in one of my ayahuasca visions, and I asked her, who is Jordan Peterson, and what is he doing? And he half-jokingly kind of interjects to the crowd that he would also like to know the answer to that question. And he continues, this is the letter. And she responded with crystalline clarity. He is here to invoke and initiate the divine masculine principle on earth at this time. So I'm writing to thank you deeply and profoundly on behalf of the great mother herself, the goddess, the divine feminine principle, who has been eagerly awaiting the awakening of the masculine into divinity and service. End quote. And so Peterson jokes that you don't get a letter like that every day. But then he corrects himself and he says, you know, actually, I do get a letter or two like that every day. And so I'm watching, you know, waiting to see where he's going to take this, how it's going to lead into the Cain and Abel story. And he says that as a psychologist, you know, in his work, in his clinical work, he's learned with his patients that very often it's useful to just say whatever comes to mind. And so he shares his thoughts about the letter with the audience. Actually, not his thoughts. He spends about two minutes kind of on an aside, explaining that this is just his spontaneous reaction, you know, sort of putting some safe distance between himself and what he's about to say, it felt like. And he says what popped into his head after reading that letter was the story of Socrates, when he was being put on trial by the Athenians for corrupting the nation's youth. And it's mentioned that 
Someone had gone to see the Delphic Oracle, which was a female visionary who could interpret dreams or answer questions, just like the ayahuasca spirit. And this person had asked the Delphic Oracle who the wisest man in Greece was, and the Oracle said that the wisest man in Greece was Socrates. And that was it. Peterson said, I know that's a crazy comparison to make, but I got a crazy mind, I guess. And that was the end of it. He didn't have anything to do with the lecture that he was going to give. He just decided to share that with the audience before he got started. And I remember thinking at the time, and again, I'm, I'm a big fan. I was a big fan at the time. But I remember thinking at the time, like, okay, you know, let's slow down a little bit, Dr. Peterson. Let's not lose our equilibrium here. Because it would be, it would be easy to do. This is an experience not a lot of us are familiar with. You know, it's funny how we treat things like this. If the president gets on TV and says that there is an invisible being in the sky who created the whole universe and is the secret power behind everything that happens, and he's watching everything we do, him and his angels, and he knows how many hairs are on each of our heads, and if the president says there's also another power, right, a dark, evil, invisible being that seeks our destruction and degeneracy, and his whole existential purpose is to lead us into doing things that the first invisible being doesn't want us to do. And if the president says that this is not just a theory for him, this is not sort of a, you know, a, a, something he came up with. He's thinking of writing a book about this is a felt reality that impacts his behavior and decision-making. And that when he does bad things, it affects him emotionally. He feels guilt and he feels fear because the invisible man is watching everything and he says it, it affects his decision-making, not only as a man, but as president. And he could get on TV and say all of that. And people would be like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And in fact, you kind of have to at least pretend to believe those things, or you probably cannot be elected president of the United States in 2020. But if after saying all of those things, he says... And the reason I know this is because the invisible being appears to me at night and speaks to me. Everybody would lose their minds, and there's a really good chance he'd probably be removed from office. Now, is that because religion, you know, at least today in our modern society, is kind of just a, a game we play to signal broad loyalties and kind of tribal identities, and no one really believes it? the way they used to, and you get kind of freaked out if people start taking it too seriously. Maybe. Maybe there's some of that, and it's probably part of it. But even back in the day, when religion was taken very seriously and very literally, you know, people still tended to get a little freaked out when someone came along claiming to have a direct line to the spirit world. Even in traditional shamanistic societies, the shamans were always viewed with, you know, kind of ambivalent feelings of reverence, but also a little bit of suspicion. You had to be a little bit careful with them, you know. And I think that probably has more to do with what it might say about the personality of the person making the claim. And even a religion like Christianity, which preaches individual salvation and self-improvement, it, it goes far out of its way to insist that, look, this thing is not about you. And religion of whatever stripe, it, it tends to go off the rails pretty quickly when someone begins to make it about themselves, to identify themselves with the principle or place themselves at the center of the story. You know, like when you're, when, when you're 
caught up in a social movement slash cultural phenomenon slash media controversy like Jordan Peterson was. And you get a letter from some girl tripping on ayahuasca telling you that the Earth Mother says you're her key master of Gozer. And you take that seriously enough to share it publicly along with the fact that your first thought upon reading it was to compare yourself to Socrates being called the wisest man in Greece by the Delphic Oracle. You know, that's just when things start to get a little bit fuzzy. And again, I want to be very clear. I'm not, I'm not making fun. I, I really have a lot of respect and admiration for Jordan Peterson. I have since the beginning, and I still do. And his, his perceptions of being a transformative figure and also that powerful people were after him, those perceptions are not based on nothing. Only very rarely are those kinds of perceptions, those delusions, invented completely out of whole cloth. The human mind is built for a pretty narrow range of social experiences. You know, most of us have fairly similar, you know, however we grew up or wherever we grew up, most of us have fairly similar, you know, we, we're, with, with, we're pretty range-bound as far as the social experiences that we're probably going to have to deal with throughout our lives. And uh, of those experiences, that range of experiences having everything in your social environment telling you that you are either a mythic hero or else a great enemy is outside of that range. Okay, most of us are not prepared for that. I thought about that story when I was trying to put myself into the mind of Jim Jones as it began its dark slide. And neither his paranoia nor his sense of his own grandeur were based on nothing. They were not based on nothing. He had plenty of evidence to support both of those things. Most of us have felt and behaved in a paranoid manner at some point, and most of us have experienced some ego inflation at times, and most of us probably had far less justifications for those feelings than Jim Jones did. You know, think about things from his perspective. He had seemed to have discovered a secret or something that, that caused the world to just fall at his feet whenever he set his mind to do something. He had the poor and marginalized gathered at his feet and, and hanging on his every word. People who were more privileged than him, educated people, attractive people, you know, they, they treated him like a god. And they mobilized to put his every whim into action. It was an objective fact that because of him, the hungry were being fed. Because of him, the sick were being healed. The temple's nursing homes and child care centers, their, their rehab facilities, you know, its work with prisoners and the mentally ill and the homeless, its care for, for, for orphans and widows, thousands of people were being helped. And while he didn't do all the work himself, Jim Jones, his will, was the reason for all of that. It would take a very grounded and level-headed person to continually disagree with every single person you know when every single moment of every day they're telling you that you're the best thing since Jesus Christ. I have to imagine that once this podcast makes me an international superstar and you're all writing me daily letters telling me of your mystical visions of me having come to manifest the masculine spirit on earth, I'll probably have trouble keeping my feet on the ground. And yet, whether my feet left the ground or not, somewhere inside of me, I would know the truth. That I'm still only me, and not the thing that you're all building me up to be.
And that contradiction would fester. And I would mutate and corrupt myself in direct proportion to how much I let all that go to my head. All frauds are paranoid. None more than those whose fraud is intended to capture and hold the attention of others rather than merely to throw others off their scent. Because to the extent that those people's fraud is successful, the more attention is drawn to them. And the higher the fraud rises in the eyes of others and the bigger that gap between reality and what's true grows. And the more scrutiny you're under and the greater the distance between what people believe about you and what you know to be true about yourself... You know, over time, the attention and adulation of others become burdens and require more fraud to prop it up. And eventually, the fraud's life is consumed by the sole purpose of perpetuating this increasingly complicated web of illusions with which he surrounded himself. He sits at the center of that web, and the slightest twitch of any thread ripples out through these interlocking lies that he's constructed to shake his whole world. Centrality and paranoia go together. They feed on each other and on the mind from both sides. Imagining yourself as the center of positive attention leads to a sense of grandiosity, which, whatever the estimation of others, can never be sustainably matched by your own estimation of yourself, because... At the end of the day, we all know all of our own secrets. Jim Jones knows he's just a man. But he's surrounded by people who believe he's much more than that. His life's work is based on people continuing to believe that about him. And yet, with people watching his every movement, you know, how long can he be perfect or continue to explain away those moments of apparent imperfection? Jim Jones used to tell his people that it was no pleasure for him to be God. But it was in fact a great burden. And he wasn't just looking for sympathy, it was a burden. You know, this continual back and forth is the essence of the personality structure of the narcissist. And while people might disagree about whether Jim Jones suffered from schizophrenia or some other clinical illness, there's no one who reads about him and disputes that his picture should be in the dictionary next to narcissism. The narcissist can never rest, and his restlessness is due to, to many things. Now, on one hand, I'm the center of the world. On the other hand, my entire self-image is derived from the attention of others. I'm the only thing that's real, and yet I depend on other people to prove it to me. I'm unique, and I'm above the general run of humanity. And you know, They, they can never understand me in all my depth and complexity, and yet I yearn for their approval. You know, which actually places them above me and gives them power over me. And this causes me to resent them and hate myself. I'm very skillful at manipulating other people's perception of me. And yet, since I am able to manipulate their perception, their approval, which I need so badly, is worthless to me and untrustworthy. Now, if you're thinking that that sounds like an awful way to go through life, just look around you. This, this hyper-aware... Neurotic perception management is sort of the default personality structure of our age. Hypersensitivity to minor fluctuations in the responses that others have to you, while believing that really you should be above caring about the opinions of others, 
and loathing yourself for not being above their opinions and resenting the others on whose opinions you become dependent and taking each one of those minor fluctuations very, very personally. Now, for most people, this remains on the level of the personal, right, and the neurotic, worrying that, you know, other people in the office or in school are talking behind your back or are otherwise concerned about what it is you're doing. But sometimes, every once in a while, things come together. Life circumstances put an individual in a position where the natural checks on this psychological process are removed. Most of us are confronted often enough with reality that we're reminded, whether or not we want to be, that no, people are not obsessing over you, for good or bad. And while the nature of subjectivity places us at the center of our own stories, of our own individual universes, inevitably we bump up against the reality of others often enough to know that that solipsism is kind of a trick of perception. But for someone like a celebrity, you know, a big superstar can be very easy to lose perspective. I mean, the celebrity is just a regular person on one level, but he's also inhabiting this outsized public personality that is nevertheless dependent for its whole existence on the attention of other people. Well, that's a serviceable definition of a narcissist. And some celebrities manage to remain very grounded. You know, they show up and do their job, collect their check. And we say about those people, wow, he sure is down to earth. But, you know, for others, the sensation of being watched becomes pervasive. And the line between personality and performance becomes blurred. I mean, or is there a line? I mean, after all, persona comes from the Greek and refers to the giant masks that dramatic performers would wear in order to be able to express themselves in a manner suitable for a large audience. Either way, it becomes possible for people to lose their own identity or subordinate it to the giant super personality. And when you're someone at a level who in some ways plays a, a social role similar to an ancient polytheistic god, you know, a fertility goddess like Marilyn Monroe or a Dionysian deity like Elvis Presley, the feedback that you're receiving from the world is so amplified and so biased in one direction that it can be very, very easy to get lost. The ancient Romans didn't need the language of clinical psychology for this insight. You know, it's why when a great general was celebrated with a triumph parading down the streets of Rome, a slave would be assigned to stand behind him in his chariot and whisper that, look, despite all the appearances and the insistence of the crowd screaming to the contrary, you are merely mortal. Because humans are social creatures. We're designed to adapt to the opinions and expectations of other people. And we are not well built to be the focus of cheering crowds without internalizing the message that the crowds are giving us. Well, Jim Jones had plenty of slaves, but none of them were assigned the task of reminding him that he was just a man and that he was merely mortal. In fact, saying anything even remotely critical of him out loud was the surest way to come under attack by every People's Temple member who heard about it. Even his, even his own mother and his wife, Marceline, even, even they fell in. You know, neither of them ever criticized him, and eventually both of them called him father. His own mother and his wife called him father, like everyone else. That is not a healthy environment 
for the guy at the top. It, it, it allows any pathological behavior or fragment of his personality just to grow unchecked. And to make matters worse, the people crowding around Jim and reinforcing his pathologies, they were themselves a pretty unstable lot. You know, refugees from the Bay Area counterculture scene whose, whose drug abuse and, and trauma and other experiences had left many of their own mooring lines to reality, you know, pretty frayed. If you go read a history of the Bay Area counterculture in the 1960s, you know, you do that, and, and one of the most remarkable things that everyone always remarks on is how quickly the whole thing went sour. People began to gather in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury early in 1967, right, getting ready for what was going to become the Summer of Love, but already by the end of that summer, people were becoming very alarmed, and, and not just the squares. And from the beginning of the, of the kind of movement, the congregation there, heroin had always coexisted alongside the psychedelic scene. The people involved with each of those scenes tended to be different. You know, they were separate groups, and they tended to be interested in different things, but they coexisted. But by the second half of 1967, you had cheap amphetamines, speed, just flooding the zone, and that changed everything. And very quickly, you saw a lot of degenerates and criminals and just straight-up psychotics of various stripes flocking to the area and taking advantage of the openness of the flower children who had been there. And many of them were actual children, I mean teenagers. I'm talking 13, 14-year-olds could be found everywhere, drunk, you know, high, engaging in free love with the adults right on the open in Berkeley and San Francisco. There are these photographic histories of the movement. You can go look at them and, you know, you, you see these kids out there in broad daylight on Telegraph Avenue and wherever, just drinking hard liquor out of the bottle with a bunch of adults and doing other things that I won't talk about. And, and with our mores today, you see, them, you see these pictures and it's just hard to imagine how any of it was ever tolerated. Contributing to the delinquency of a minor became one of the most commonly charged criminal acts, but that general sort of anodyne description obscures the fact that most of those arrests were of adult men plying underage runaways with drugs and alcohol in order to use them for sex. And things got ugly, and, and things became very violent, just very quickly, unpredictably violent. Charles Manson stalked the shadows, and he was gathering up his first recruits there in 67. Speed freaks were, were walking through the alleys, literally stealing people's cats to cook for food. People's homes were all of a sudden, none, this, this was not happening a year or two ago, and all of a sudden people's homes all around the area were just being broken into all the time, and people who were made erratic by drugs and mental illness were roving the sidewalks and they would just attack random passersby and then move on mumbling again as if nothing had happened. It was, it was an ugly scene. The social critic Eric Hoffer, after observing this escalating chaos in 1967, wrote, quote, In the Bay Area, you can see the young beset and preyed upon by vultures, wolves, and parasites, dope peddlers, pimps, lechers, perverts, thugs, cult mongers, and ideological seducers. Everywhere you look, you can see human beings rot before they ripen. End quote. After watching all this escalating chaos in 1967, Eric Hoffer wrote, quote, In the Bay Area, you can see the young beset and preyed upon by vultures, wolves, and parasites, dope peddlers, pimps, lechers, perverts, thugs, cult mongers, and ideological seducers. Everywhere you look, you can see human beings rot before they ripen. 
end quote. Now, the hippies and most of the other counterculture people who were who were into the political scene, you know, the, the you know the new consciousness or political counterculture folks, they they hadn't really approved of heroin before, but they really didn't like the speed, and so they fled. They got out of there. And, and the scene in San Francisco fell apart quickly. You know, first they went across the bay to Berkeley or to other nearby hotspots, but the speed freaks followed them, so they kept moving up to Marin County, up to Humboldt, up to Mendocino, and communes started popping up all over Northern California, all around Ukiah, the Mendocino County seat, just as Jim Jones' tiny little band of Indiana followers was getting settled in Ukiah in 1968 and 1969. And so some of those Bay Area refugees found their way into People's Temple. Some of them joined. And that was how a large number of these left-wing zealots and counterculture veterans from the Bay Area found their way into People's Temple in those years. Many of them, most of them, if you take a broad view, once they joined People's Temple, you know, they actually had their lives stabilized and improved quite a bit after the, you know, just what had been going on with them in recent years. But they brought along the counterculture's, you know, uh, <laughs> they, they, they brought some of that scene with them. They brought the counterculture's uh, innovative and open-minded approach towards sex with them, for example. We talked about that a little bit last episode. In 20 years of marriage, Jim Jones had never once stepped out on Marceline. In all their years in Indiana, in the whole first stretch, the first couple of years in California, and for a guy like Jim Jones, as impulsive and kind of egotistical as he is, it's kind of remarkable, 20 years of marriage, and he never did anything like that. But once he started having these these people coming in from the Bay Area counterculture, the, the culture of people's temple changed, and he changed with it. And it didn't take him very long to adapt to you know, a new regime of sexual values once he was surrounded every day by young, attractive flower girls who were just falling over themselves trying to get his attention. And these refugees also brought the drugs. Drug and alcohol use, even smoking cigarettes, was was forbidden in the temple. Some people used them anyway. There are some indications that Jim Jones may have used or potentially even had a problem with pain pills for a little while at one point back in Indiana, although it, it doesn't seem to have been debilitating or anything. But by 1970, he had developed a, a very bad complementary habit of amphetamines and barbiturates. And just as he rationalized having sex with his male and female followers as something that he was doing for their benefit, you know, only for them, to help shore up their faith or their self-esteem so that they could continue to be good soldiers for the movement, he, he, just as he did that, he justified his drug use as something that was just necessary to help him bear the burden of leading the temple. It was for the movement and never for him. And it began slowly at first. Just a pill to help you get to sleep. And after a while, you lose track of how often you've used them until one night you try to go to sleep without one and you can't get there. All night with no sleep. And you've got to lead two church services and a leadership meeting today, so you resort to a little bump from an amphetamine. And thanks to the speed, you perform like a god. But then that night, you're so wired that you need a double dose of the barbiturate to get to sleep. You get your sleep, but... That double dose leaves you groggy the next morning, and you've got a lot to do, another busy day, so you pop another amphetamine, and, you know, this is how it starts. And where it ends by 1970 is with Jim Jones hammering amphetamines all day, every day, including by injection, and then knocking himself out every night with sleeping pills. Every day, every night, 
until his eyes were so permanently bloodshot that he started wearing those ubiquitous sunglasses that he's known for. Indoors, you know, outdoors, day, night, doesn't matter. And he would do this from now on, every day for years, until the very end. And long-term amphetamine use, abuse rather, um, you know, is well known to cause and or amplify extreme paranoia and also delusions of grandeur. It's well known to do that to anyone. To someone like Jim, who, you know, already having paranoid fixations in the past, ideas that people are out to get him and that people who are close to him can't be trusted, as well as a delusional sense of his own importance and grandiosity. I mean, the drugs were like throwing rocket fuel on the fire. But you couldn't design a set of circumstances more perfectly engineered to remove the brakes on every dangerous tendency of Jim's personality. You take a guy who, in the past, believed that he was being contacted by extraterrestrials and told to save his people from imminent nuclear destruction, who imagines himself to be a figure of national, if not global, significance, who is beginning to preach already that he's an avatar of the Spirit of God, the reincarnated Lenin, Jesus, and Gandhi, you give him an unlimited supply of a drug well-known to supercharge paranoia and delusions of grandeur, and surround him with people who only reinforce every one of those feelings. It's just as bad of a situation as you could possibly design. And people's temple's growing during this period, too. It's growing rapidly. And the growth of the church contributes to Jim's grandiosity, but also his paranoia. Success and adulation from all these new people fed his ego, but he didn't know all these people. Not the way he knew the crew that had come with him from Indiana. It just wasn't possible. There were too many people joining too fast to fully vet them or kind of keep track of them. Even when the church had consisted of just a small group from Indiana and a few local California recruits back in 1966, you know, Jim was worrying about plots and frequently had his, his lieutenants case the church for bugs or recording devices. And he was obsessed with the idea that he was under surveillance. Or at least that someone out there was doing their best to put him under surveillance. And only his vigilance and the loyalty of his people kept him one step ahead. Now Jim had always pushed his people hard in their work for the church and community. But now all that pushing had the double purpose of helping him ferret out potential traitors. Any sign of laziness or lack of full commitment was seen as an indicator of potential disloyalty. And Jim also used sex to fathom the loyalty of his followers. You know, he believed that his skill in the bedroom bound the temple women to him and that he could read you know, the truth of a woman when she was naked and open to him like that. And he had sex with men in the temple partly because it was unlikely that a spy or an informant sent by the FBI or CIA or whoever he was afraid of that week was going to be dedicated enough to the job to be sodomized by him in the line of duty. Members of the inner circle were encouraged to watch each other and everyone else and report any sign of disloyalty. He tested his people in other ways. His lawyer, Tim Stone, was probably the most irreplaceable member of People's Temple. His legal and administrative acumen, his position in the community, you know, and just his raw energy and his devotion to the cause, it allowed people... Uh, rather the temple to, to do things that Jim had only dreamed about before. And it's not a stress to say that without Tim Stone, I mean, you might not have ever heard of People's Temple. 
Tim Stone was better educated and in many ways more cultured than Jim, and his importance to the temple made him a potential single point of failure in the operation. To do everything he did for the organization, Tim had to have the keys to the kingdom. You know, he knew where every dollar was, who was doing what, where everybody was buried. And his knowledge made him a liability at the same time it made Jim very dependent on him. And you know, even though Tim was fanatically loyal, you could never be sure. Someone as paranoid as Jim Jones could especially never be sure. And that made Jim very uncomfortable. It didn't help that Tim Stone's wife, Grace, was initially reluctant to join the church. And she was kind of skeptical of Jim Jones' whole act from the beginning. And Jim worried that Grace's independent streak and her lack of commitment to the movement might influence her husband. And that was just something he could not allow to happen. At this point, back in the late 60s and early 70s, Tim, Tim Stone, is as firmly under Jim's control as anyone could ever be. I mean, he hardly took a breath without asking Jim's permission or looking for his approval. He asked Jim how he should dress, whether it was okay to take his wife on dates. And I, I don't mean a specific date, like, you know, hey, Jim, I was thinking of taking Grace out on Saturday night. Does the church have anything planned for me? No, no, no. I mean, he asked Jim if it was okay to take his wife out on dates at all, ever, period. And he's just a total puppy dog. But with Grace, things were not that simple. And so it was going to take a more subtle touch to bind her to the church. And so Jim, at first, he, he would give the couple other privileges that, uh, privileges that other individuals and couples uh, were denied. And for example, they weren't required to board any orphans or elderly folks or other temple members in their home, as almost everybody else who had a house was. And they were permitted to keep you know, more personal possessions and luxuries than the rest. You know, others in the church hated them for it. There was a lot of resentment toward Tim and Grace, but, you know, Jim justified it by pointing out that he was the assistant district attorney in Mendocino County. And so he had to entertain important people at home, and he kind of had to look the part, you know, that he was playing for the temple. Grace was placed into a job for the temple that she loved, working with elderly people in one of the temple's convalescent homes. And Jim very quickly elevated her up into the church leadership. First, she was put into the planning commission, and then she was put onto the church council, and finally she was made the head counselor for the entire church. Now, you know, remember, this is a girl about 20 years old with a high school education, serving in a high position of a very large organization. And if it was an attempt at flattery, it worked very well. You know, after a while, she began to see Jim Jones in terms more to his liking, and the two became closer, close enough that he could be there to comfort her when Tim, her husband, started sleeping with other women in the temple, supposedly at the behest of Jim himself, although Tim Stone denied that at the time and only claimed it long after the fact. When Grace became pregnant, the planning commission treated that as a scandal since the church discouraged childbirth and actually had a, a policy of mandatory abortion um, for members of the inner circle, at least. And so she faced abuse from the planning commission from some of the other church members while her husband would just stand by and say nothing to defend her. But Jim Jones stepped in and said that she would be allowed to have the baby and that it wouldn't compromise her position in the church. So the baby was born and given the name John Victor Stone. At least that's what the birth certificate would read. But one week after the birth certificate was filed, the baby's legal father, Tim Stone, who, as 
assistant district attorney from Mendocino County, understood the consequences of what he was doing, signed a document correcting the record. It said, quote, I, Timothy Oliver Stone, hereby acknowledge that in April 1971, I entreated my beloved pastor, James W. Jones, to sire a child by my wife, Grace Lucy Stone, who had previously, at my insistence, reluctantly but graciously consented thereto. James W. Jones agreed to do so, reluctantly, after I explained that I very much wished to raise a child, but was unable after extensive attempts to sire one myself. My reason for requesting James W. Jones to do this is that I wanted my child to be fathered, if not by me, by the most compassionate, honest, and courageous human being the world contains. The child, John Victor Stone, was born January 25, 1972. I am privileged beyond words to have the responsibility for caring for him, and I undertake this task humbly and with the steadfast hope that said child will become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and be instrumental in bringing God's kingdom here on earth, as has been his wonderful natural father. I declare, under penalty of perjury, that the foregoing is true and correct. End quote. That document was signed by Tim Stone and Jim Jones, as well as by Jim's wife, Marceline, as witness. Now, like I said, Jim tested his people in various ways. He felt content that his lawyer and confidant was loyal enough to sign over paternity of his own son. It's unknown if the boy was actually fathered by Jim. He, he, if you look at the boy, he shares many features with Jim and none that I can really see with Tim. But there were no reliable DNA tests at the time. And Grace Stone, who is still alive today, actually, she does not discuss the issue. Jim definitely believed the boy was his. And Tim Stone seems to have agreed with him, uh, although he changes his mind later. In addition to satisfying himself to Tim's loyalty, though, and binding grace to the church, unless she was prepared to leave behind her son, Jim had also further confirmed for himself his control over his wife, Marceline, by having her have to stand there and endorse the issue. You know, after struggling with Jim's affairs and at one point even threatening to leave him and leave the church, Marceline had finally resigned herself to play a more ceremonial role as kind of church mother. And she went to a planning commission meeting and stated publicly that she was willing to share her husband with anyone in the church who needed that personal touch from him. But, you know, but those were just words. Here, Jim was able to watch her carefully as she signed a document testifying to Jim's first out-of-wedlock child. And she signed it without complaint. And later, she even said that she had given Jim permission to father the boy. Jim's paranoia demanded sacrifices. It demanded proofs of loyalty. Requiring Tim Stone to give up his son, it makes me remember God in the book of Genesis requiring Abraham to make a blood sacrifice of his only son, Isaac. In that version, God holds back Abraham's knife hand at the last moment before the child's about to be murdered, after toying with Abraham to see if he was going to be obedient enough and satisfying himself that he was, satisfying himself for the moment. You know, perhaps God could never be sure if Abraham would have actually done it, because the rest of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, however you, however you like it, at least read under one light, is basically the story of, it's, it's one long series of absurd tests that the descendants of Abraham are put to in order to ease God's paranoia regarding their loyalty. I mean, it starts right at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. 
Why even put the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden if not to tempt Adam and Eve to take a bite? Why stick them in there with a serpent who was older and wiser than the two of them put together and known to be a troublemaker? Myths are useful for boiling things down to essentials and then taking those essentials and blowing them up to godlike proportions to make sure that we get the point. There's a series on Netflix based on uh, a Marvel comic book called Jessica Jones. It gets right to the heart of this. And, you know, it actually has a lot of insights. It may sound silly. It's got a lot of insight into the mind of a pathological cult leader. In the first season, it's the only one I've seen, uh, the primary villain is called the Purple Man. He dresses in purple suits, I guess. They, they give him a name in the show. In the comic books, it's Purple Man. I mentioned that narcissists are very skilled in manipulating the responses and perceptions of other people toward them. And the Purple Man is basically a portrayal of someone who has this turned all the way up to the max setting. His superpower is basically the Jedi mind trick. You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Just all the brakes removed, though. The power is absolute. If he says stop moving and forgets to put a time limit on it or to tell you that you can move again, then you stay put until you starve to death. If instead of stop moving, he says, stay where you are, you will fight and claw to the death if anybody tries to move you. If he says, pick up that hot poker and put it in your eye, there's no hesitation. You pick it up and you put it in your eye. If he tells you to do it without screaming, you don't make a sound. And the thing is, it's on all the time. It's an automatic response to hearing him give a verbal command. He can't turn it off. And in the story, he's had this absolute power his whole life, or at least since he's learned to talk. And at first, you know, it was just that his parents never seemed to say no when he wanted a cookie, and teachers at school never told him that he'd given a wrong answer. But over time, he starts to realize what's going on, and to understand the power that he has. And of course, he grows up as the spoiled center of the universe that any child would be if they got literally everything they wanted. And, and yet he was unable to get the one thing that any child really needs the most, right? The, the freely willed love and concern of other people, especially his parents. In a way, there were no other real people in the world. You know, to him, everyone was an NPC. And once he became aware of his gift, you know, he could never again trust or get anything out of the love or positive feelings of other people. You know, maybe they would have loved him anyway. But he could never know for sure. And so naturally he grows up and becomes a supervillain. And eventually he meets Jessica Jones, the protagonist of the show. And now Jessica Jones' superpower is that she has superhuman strength. Pretty basic. And so the Purple Man holds her in thrall and uses her both as a girlfriend and as an enforcer. And one night they're out being evil and he commands her to murder this, this regular woman. And somehow, Jessica Jones manages to muster a moment of defiance, and the spell is temporarily broken. And she refuses to murder the woman, and, and she's able to escape. And he's telling her, stop, stop, but she runs away. Now, this is the first time in his entire life that this has ever happened. And so the Purple Man becomes completely obsessed with Jessica Jones. Suddenly, there's another real person in the world. The only other real person in the world. The only person with whom he has the possibility of an actual human relationship. Because she's the only person who can actually choose to say yes or no. 
But of course, her answer has to be no, because having experienced the loss of will under his power and the things that he made her do when she was just his toy, she's terrified of him. And so she hides from him, you know, because she knows that her moment of freedom was a fluke. She can feel it. And his entire existence becomes completely absorbed in finding and reuniting with her. And again, of course, he is exactly the psychotic, petulant child that someone who had lived his life would be. And yet, he really does love her, like, in a way. He reacts to her rejection with tantrums. You know, he threatens her. He threatens to hurt other people. If she, You know, trying to force her to say yes. Even though the very thing he needs from her, the very thing that makes her significant to him is her ability to say no. You know, there's a neat parallel. If you go one layer deeper, and I don't know if the show's writers did this on purpose or not, um, between the purple man and a cult leader like Jim Jones and the paranoia and primary narcissism of the old Testament God who cut a deal with Abraham to give him a son. He couldn't make himself and then ordering him to kill the boy and then saying, just kidding at the last second. You know, it isn't just that everyone else feels unreal. The all-powerful one himself inevitably feels insubstantial as he moves through the world without any resistance. What would be the contents of the purple man's mind, given his life experiences? It's an interesting question. I mean, every person, Albert Einstein, General Patton, Charles Manson, everybody, was nothing but a puppet to him. Their thoughts, their morals, their identities are just pathetically fragile, temporary little things. You know, he could order a mother to throw her child off a cliff, and she'd do it without hesitation. So, so what is a mother's love? He could make Gandhi shoot a baby. He could make Martin Luther King go out and give speeches in support of the KKK. So what are your little silly human values to this guy? You're all puppets. None of you are real, but that goes both ways. You know, his existence becomes a form of solitary confinement. And if you've been in solitary confinement from the day you were born, what would you use as a reference point to confirm that you really exist at all? I mean, you could go Cartesian. I think, therefore, I am. Fair enough. But we have thoughts in our dreams. What makes a dream a dream is that the entire dream universe is constructed for our benefit. It's an extension of our own minds. And technically, it's all under our control, even if that control is unconscious. And, and that's how the world was for the Purple Man. Everything under his control, until Jessica Jones told him no. Well, how absurd and enraging for the Purple Man to see other humans as animals, as less than animals, as toys, and yet to find himself craving their affection, because he's still human. You know, it's, it's the dilemma of every narcissist. And it's why narcissism always has more to do with self-loathing than with the colloquial use of the term as pathological self-love. And the narcissist experiences other people as an extension of himself. He's an expert manipulator. Not, not quite so good as the Purple Man, but good. And so he can often get other people to like or even love him. But what good is love that's achieved through manipulation? The one whose love he's received is degraded by the very fact that he was able to manipulate them. And so the narcissist loses interest in love from that person that was so easily manipulated as soon as he gets it. And yet, 
His ego can't stand to lose the person's affection either, of course. You know, he considers it beneath him to crave the affection of such lesser creatures than himself, and yet, again, he is human, so he does crave it, and he hates himself for craving it, and he hates the other person for holding this power over him. And so goes the unhappy narcissistic cycle. I'm repeating this because it's important. It is the most important thing to understanding Jim Jones. So again, what would be the contents of a person's mind who had lived his entire existence like the Purple Man? He'd gone his entire life without ever having had to convince anyone of anything. During puberty, he wouldn't have experienced any adolescent struggles with sex. Instead, he gets a crush on a girl at school, he can just go to her house, tell her parents to leave, order her to take off her clothes, and so on. And if he really likes her and he doesn't want it to go like that, too bad. He can't turn it off. The minute he asks, will you be my girlfriend, the power kicks in and she's just slavishly going along with it. Now, how could his interest in her be sustained under those circumstances? It would be impossible. It would really be impossible not to feel contempt for her eventually. Just to see her would make you angry because it's reminding you of something you can never have. I mean, plus, you know, she would just be a robot and you have an infinite supply of robots. So, you know, on a bad day, you might just end up telling her to pick up that hot poker and put it in her eye for entertainment. The contents of a mind that had never had to stop for even a split second to puzzle over how to get what he wanted or, or to ever delay gratification, even for a moment, that would be a mind very different from ours. It would be a mind that would be occupied solely with generating new desires and new games to play alone with itself in the universe. And so one day he said, let there be light. And he separates the waters from the waters with an expanse of firmament and he conjures up the dry land. He calls forth the seed-bearing plants and, you know, fashions the birds and beasts and the creeping things. And things move along kind of on autopilot until one day Eve meets a clever little snake who tells her, hey, you know, why don't you eat from this tree about which God has commanded thou, thou shalt not eat. And so she eats. And she thinks pretty good. She brings the fruit home to her husband, Adam, and he takes a bite. And the serpent tells him the real reason that this particular fruit has been forbidden. He tells him that God knew that once they ate of the fruit, their eyes would be open and they would become like gods themselves, knowing good and evil. With their disobedience, they had stepped out of the landscape into the foreground. They were no longer just a part of nature, a part of creation. Suddenly, Adam and Eve were weeds in the garden. You know, little agents of chaos within an order created by God and structured according to his laws alone. And so God kicks them out of the garden and punishes them in other ways. But the serpent was not lying. They are awake. And the human race, which issues from Adam and Eve, it does, in fact, achieve a higher level of consciousness. And you read through the Bible as it goes on, and the story begins to portray them with more and more granularity and psychological complexity. Before that moment, God had been alone. In solitary confinement in the universe from the beginning of time, and all of a sudden, here are these little creatures, mankind, conscious, aware, you know, weak, fallible, really pretty stupid in many ways, but, but unmistakably awake. 
Every single phenomenon in the history of the universe, up until Eve took that fruit, had bent instantly to God's will, operating according to the ordering principles that he had worked out in the first moment, until these little human creatures suddenly decide to start doing their own thing. And so God watches these things with fascination. You know, he watches these, these troublemakers spread out all over the face of the earth. And early on, they build a great big tower, and God doesn't like that, so he kicks it over. He even kills all but a handful of us with a great flood. Now, on one hand, God's obsession with man and his paranoia regarding our obedience is understandable in the context of the story, right? You imagine you're asleep at night, alone in a dream, like any other dream, like God was in the universe before he created it, before he created us. And suddenly some totally independent actor, who's not part of your dream, some other intelligence that's operating independent of you altogether, shows up in your dream and just starts doing their own thing. It would be terrifying, you know, like Nightmare on Elm Street, even, even if the intruder wasn't trying to hurt you. But when you've been alone from the beginning of time, and suddenly you're not alone anymore, I mean, what else is there to pay attention to? Now, how could you be interested in anything else? And so eventually, after some time goes by, God reaches out. He finds a man he calls Abraham, an old man, with an old wife and no children, and he makes him an offer he can't refuse. God wants to have a relationship with man, so this is why he's contacted Abraham. But of course, men don't live forever, and God does. And so God promises to look after all of Abraham's descendants, going down through history in exchange for Abraham agreeing that his descendants will maintain this relationship with God and God alone. Now, first, Abraham points out that, you know, hey, me and my wife are like 90 years old, but God's like, you know, bro, I'm a voice in the sky, I got this. And so Abraham agrees. And he doesn't even flinch later on when God seems to renege on the whole agreement and orders him to just kill his son. And I've often wondered when I've read that story if God was disappointed in Abraham for that. You know, for sure, if, if Abraham had refused to kill Isaac, I'm sure God would have gone nuts and destroyed a city or two and threatened Abraham with thunderbolts, but I don't know. You know, again, it's the very fact that we are not mindlessly obedient, the way dung beetles and walruses are, that makes these creatures so interesting to God. But it's early, you know, we're, we're only in Genesis, so God's still learning, and so is man. And so, of course, God relents, and Abraham's son grows up, and he has a son of his own, a precocious boy named Jacob. When Jacob grows into a man, he takes things to another level. One night, God comes to him. Quote, Jacob rose up that night, and took his two wives and his two woman servants and his eleven sons and passed out passed over the ford Jabbok. When he had sent them across the stream, he sent also his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and thus Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for day breaketh. And Jacob replied, I shall not let thee go, unless thou bless me. The man asked him, What is thy name? Jacob, answered he. Saith the man, Thy name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for thou hast struggled with God and with man, and hast prevailed. And Jacob said, 
I pray thee, please tell me thy name. But the man said, Why dost thou ask my name? And the man blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For here I have seen God face to face, yet my life was preserved. End quote. Now think about that. The very name, Israel, means one who struggles against God. And God's people, the Israelites, are the people who struggle against God. The chosen people of God, their very name refers to the fact that they are capable of pushing back against him. You know, God for all eternity alone in the universe, every molecule of the universe racing to fulfill his whims as soon as he formed them. Nothing in existence except him and his toys until one day there's this creature that looks him in the eye in a way that's different from all the other animals. In a way that causes God to realize that there's someone home. There's someone else here. And inside these creatures is a little kernel that for all God's power cannot be got at. It's literally the only place in the entire history of the universe that God can't just walk into. He has to knock and be let in. If you've read the Hebrew Bible, you know how the rest of the story goes. If you've watched Jessica Jones, you know the story. It's not pretty. You know, God becomes completely obsessed with having the loyalty of these people. He throws insane temper tantrums when they defy him, you know, or when he catches them casting an eye toward another god. When they don't do what he wants, he burns their cities down, he floods them out, he sends poisonous snakes to bite them, he has them conquered and enslaved by foreign enemies, you know, he just leaves and slams the door behind him. But they call on him to return, he always does. But when he does, when he gets back, he finds that they're still not obedient little robots, and inevitably they piss him off again, and this codependent cycle of abuse repeats. And he goes back and forth. I need you to choose to love me. But if you don't, then I'll kill you. And the Israelites are slapped around and slapped around, and they come crawling back again and again. And again, like the Purple Man, how absurd, how enraging for the master and creator of the universe to crave the affection of these little creatures. And once he had it, how could he be sure that it was real? And that they weren't just responding to his power out of fear. Like Jim Jones in The Purple Man, in the Bible, God reassures himself by subjecting his people to these little tests. In the book of Job, the devil gets God to let him torture one of his most faithful worshipers, just to see if he breaks. No, actually, you know what? The devil didn't even bring it up. God brought it up. The devil's passing through, and God starts bragging that, hey, I got this servant Job. He would never rebel against me, no matter what. Now, you know, the book of Genesis never actually says that God created the snake. And in the Near Eastern mythologies in which the Bible has its roots, the snake would have been at least as old and coexistent with God. And so this wise old serpent, he's, he knows enough about God to know how to tempt him. And so God brags he's got this obedient slave named Job, and the devil says, Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. why wouldn't he be loyal? You know, you've made him rich, given him a big family, everything he wants. He's never been tested. A little tiny bit of suffering. He'll be cursing your name. Well, that's enough for God, you know, whose paranoia regarding the faithfulness of his people is bad enough without the devil's prodding. And so he's like, oh, yeah, well, I'll prove it. Do whatever you want to him. See if I'm lying. And the devil just goes ham on poor Job. It destroys all his property, gives him painful diseases, 
causes the whole community to hate him, kills all of his children, and leaves him sitting covered with boils in a pile of ashes as his wife berates him and saying, just, you know, get it over with, curse God and die. You know, the funny thing about the story, though, Job never did curse God, but he did stand his ground, at least till the very, very end. You know, he had these friends, Job's friends, who come to him to give him counsel in his misery, and they take the perspective that you would actually expect a God who's demanding unconditional worship to appreciate. You know, since God is just, they said, Job, you must have done something to bring this suffering upon yourself, and so all you got to do is get on your knees and beg for mercy, and surely God, who is just, will release you from all this torment. You know, I think he probably would have. That's the thing about this story. I think God probably would have if Job had done that. But then Job would not have a book of the Bible dedicated to him either. Job refused to apologize for a sin he had not committed. He refused to beg for mercy in the face of such capriciousness. He knew he was innocent. And so if God was causing or allowing his suffering, despite his promise to look after those who kept his word, then it was God who was to blame, not him. It was God who was unjust and hypocritical. And this is what he's telling his friends. And after a while, as you can imagine, God has heard enough of that kind of talk and he makes an appearance. But when he shows up, his anger is not directed at Job. It's directed at his friends. God said that it was Job and not you who have spoken truthfully about me. And then he takes Job up into a whirlwind and he gives him a divine vision that neither Abraham nor Moses nor anyone else in the Bible story could ever have imagined. No one had anything close. It was a vision of God rivaled in all religious literature, really, only by Krishna's revelation of his many-armed form to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. And it was Job who had called God to the carpet and challenged him, who maybe had shamed God into showing up, and not his sycophantic friends groveling at God's feet who was given that vision, who was privileged with that vision. The psychologist Carl Jung wrote a short book speculating that, you know, you have to think about this as literature, that's fine. But Jung wrote a book speculating that maybe this encounter with Job had awakened something like a conscience in God. I mean, he had behaved like a capricious monster. He'd say what you want. There's no way to justify it, not, not even according to the, his own rules. But if Job had merely groveled, you know, God might have moved on, having proved his point to the devil, and even restored Job to his original state and rewarded his faith with even more, and just kind of continued on as before. But God up in that whirlwind, he could rage and belittle and threaten Job all he wanted. But at the end of the day, Job was right. And his refusal to break back God into a corner where he had to recognize that himself. You know, God had felt regret once before. He, he regretted creating man just before he sent the great flood. But this is different. This time, on pain of self-contradiction, God was forced by one of these ridiculous, frustrating, independent-minded little humans, no less, to admit that he was acting like a dick. And so Jung speculated that, and, and again, the, the lines between literature, mythology, psychology, cosmology, always a bit fuzzy with Jung. So take this with, 
whatever level of seriousness you know works for your own taste. Young himself would be fine with that. Young speculated that having been forced by Job to reckon with everything he had put us through, all those mindless, undeserved ass kickings that he'd handed the Israelites over the years, God sent his own son to share in our suffering and make amends. And this would explain, again, in the story, think of this as, as literary interpretation, if you're not into religion, that it explains the change in God's attitude toward man in the New Testament, as well as his disappearance, his apparent disappearance afterwards. After everything that had happened, and what would have been the proper thing for God to do at that point? Strip it of the religious clothing. You know, think of it as the purple man and Jessica Jones instead. He says that he loves her. And she says, okay, if you really love me, then you will let me go. If someone with his power really loves someone, the only appropriate way to behave toward that person is to stay the hell away from them. Because your power is too overwhelming. Your very presence turns the other person into something other than who they are. Something other than the thing that you actually love. And so any relationship is inevitably corrupted from the start. And even better, if it was possible to do so, and it's a comic book, so why wouldn't it be? You know, he should go find a wizard or a mad scientist who would strip him of his superpower forever. To prove that I love you, I give up all of my power to control you. There's a reading of the New Testament story, the crucifixion of Christ, that actually takes that approach. God's direct presence in the affairs of men misshapes us as surely as citizens are corrupted by a totalitarian state, no matter how apparently benevolent. And so to prove his desire for a true relationship with mankind, God makes the ultimate sacrifice and gives up his power to have any control over our lives and pulling back from the scene. He's still there. You can go to him, but he's given up all power to compel. As far as myths go, that's a pretty powerful one. You know, for God so loved the world that he came to us in human form, stripped of power, to reach out to us on an equal basis, to attempt to form a relationship which we are free to reject, even to reject violently, and to hang him on a cross to die as he laments his abandonment. See, even Jesus Christ felt the temptations of power. Early in the gospel story, and you guys are just going to have to bear with me a little bit, I've done 15, 20 hours on a Christian cult so far, I've hardly talked about the Bible, so, so indulge me a little bit. I'll get back to the story in a minute. Early in the gospel story, Jesus is brought before John the Baptist. John's been prophesying the coming of the Messiah, and he recognizes Jesus as the one whose way he'd been preparing. After John baptizes Jesus, and it's revealed that, yes, indeed, he is the Son of God come to redeem the people, Jesus wanders in a mystic state out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and think about what it is he's supposed to do. And so there in the wilderness, the devil comes before him to offer three temptations right at the outset of his mission. And together, these three temptations are, uh, they, they basically comprise a test to which all would-be saviors, from Christ to Lenin to Jim Jones, are put, and which virtually all of them inevitably fail. So seeing that God, now in the body of Christ, had been fasting, and so had come to share in the suffering of hunger, the devil tempted him. He said, you know, lookest thou upon these stones lying hither and thither. If thou art truly the Son of God, turnest these stones to bread and satisfy thy hunger. 
Now, Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew that this first temptation, coming as it did while he was seeking answers regarding his mission to mankind, was not simply an inducement to prove his power by way of a magic trick in the wilderness. That's not what if thou art truly the Son of God meant. It was not the mere temptation to satisfy his own hunger, but the temptation to gain the loyalty and obedience of man by satisfying theirs. And maybe to believe the materialist myth that the heart of man is darkened only by want. If, if you want men to follow you, you know, just fill their bellies and they'll fall at your feet. And once they do, you know, as long as you desire their benefit, use that obedience gained by the dispensing of bread to order them to be kind and order them to be loving and order them to be just. After all, don't you know better than them what they need, what's good for them? It's a powerful temptation. Since Jesus, being Jesus, he did indeed know better than they themselves what was good for them. But he recognized the trap. Knowing that while behavioral modification can be achieved by coercion, spiritual transformation cannot. And so in response to the devil's first temptation, he declared, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Holy Spirit. Well, the devil is nothing if not clever and persistent, so he tries another approach. Leads Jesus up to a high place, and he, he points to the ground below and says, uh, So, is it not written that the Lord, suffering not his son to be harmed, shall send angels to lift thee up before ye go splat? Come on then, if, if thou art truly the Son of God, cast thyself down to the ground below and let these angels show themselves. Jesus had read his Torah, and so, knowing that the serpent was the wisest of the creatures made by God, uh, Jesus understood that the devil's second temptation was, again, not just for him to perform a miracle in the desert for an audience of one. It's the devil. The devil knows perfectly well who Jesus is. He needs no proof. The second temptation was to induce doubt in Jesus himself. And above all, to remind him that the people that he'd come to save would not believe in him. But that both his doubt and the disbelief of the people can be overwhelmed by the display of supernatural powers. Is it really too much to ask God for proof? And if not for, for you, then how about for them, for the people whose, whose salvation you, you seek? And these people are weak, distracted, and put upon. You know, they're, 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 they're encumbered by the accumulated weight of ignorance and tradition. So give them a definitive sign. You know, don't come to them in sandals. Come to them, come to them in the clouds, to the sound of angels' trumpets, and then they will know for sure that you are the Son of God come to redeem them, and they'll worship you and follow any path you put before them. But just as Jesus would not buy men's loyalty with bread, he was not going to overpower man's free will with this vulgar display of power. All love involves a measure of faith that the other person is who he or she says they are. You know, love is not compatible with demands for proof. It's like if a husband accuses his wife of, of cheating on him and demands to read all her emails and text messages. And she says, look, I have not done anything like that. I'm faithful to you. Um, and reading my messages uh, will be crossing a serious line. But if that is what you need, if you really don't believe me, you can, you can read them. Now, maybe, maybe she's just being very clever, right? Using reverse psychology. 
But if he insists on reading them and it turns out that she's telling the truth, that's going to be really hard to walk back. And he may have sacrificed the very thing he was worried about losing by, by doing that. You know, or turn it another way. Maybe, maybe he taps her phones and hires a private investigator to track her every move and tells her that he's done this, right? So she knows she's being watched. Now, maybe under those circumstances, she remains faithful. And, and every time she's around her friends, she gushes about, oh, how great my husband is. But what good is any of that? You know, and, and is, is love possible for either of them under those circumstances? No. You know, Jesus was not going to resort to compelling people to believe by the display of, you know, of great big miracles. Love that is not freely given and does, does not involve an element of faith is not love. And if he had cast himself from that cliff in an effort to force God to show his hand, the bond would have been broken as surely as between the husband who read his wife's messages to, you know, assuage his own insecurity. And he likely would have crashed onto the rocks below to the sound of Satan's laughter. And so he admonished the devil. He says, though it is written that the father shall lift up the son, lest harm come to a hair on his head. It is also written that thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Now, maybe the devil suspected that those first two would fail. And so he fell back on the temptation, which had gotten the better of virtually all great men throughout history. In a vision, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the human world. And he says, you know, thou knowest that I have dominion over this world. It is within my power to place all that thou seest underneath thy feet. Every king and all their people will bow to thee, if only thou wouldst bow to me. Now, on a basic reading, the three temptations of Christ are, are appealing to base motivations. Appetite, doubt, and now ambition, right? For the finale, the devil has offered Jesus political power, basically. But as with the first and second temptations, this third offer appeals not just to instinct, you know, the ambition, but to idealism. You know, buy man's loyalty with bread or coerce his faith by the proof of miracles. And then when he's putty in your hands, remake him into the improving being that, you know, that you wish him to be. Or take political power and create a society in which men can thrive. Protect them from each other and from themselves. Educate the children to liberate them from the ignorant superstitions of their parents. Let your wisdom and your justice prevail over the whole land and bring good order to the lives of the people who, look, in any case, have to be ruled by somebody. Now, Jesus had wandered into the wilderness after the revelation of his purpose on a vision quest, seeking a further revelation of how he was supposed to achieve that purpose. And after 40 days of lonely fasting, the temptations of the devil must have appeared in form and substance as something like the answers he was seeking. You know, if you seek after the good of man, feed him, mystify him with miracles, cow him with authority, whatever it takes, and then he'll be your captive in mind and body, you know, well-fed and docile, happily singing your praises and working toward his own improvement. Is that not what you're after? But by this point, the devil's game's wearing a little thin. His temptations to bribery and coercion, they were offered as shortcuts, but they were like the shortcuts to love that are offered by prostitution or rape. 
and they were an invitation to this permanent, to the permanent mistrust and paranoia that must pervade any relationship that's founded upon a lie. You know, you can imagine being love in love with someone who's playing hard to get or ignoring you altogether, and a wizard offers you a potion that would cause her to fall totally and permanently in love with you. Well, I suspect that even your moments of warmest intimacy would feel like a violation. You'd never be able to kick the feeling. And that unless she had been robbed entirely of her humanity, and if she had, why love her, that she would be herself like haunted by a nameless dissociation and a, and a sense of inauthenticity. And even with the shared memories and built-up affection of years, that you'd lie awake at night, pursued by the knowledge that it was not real. Wondering if you'd wake up in the morning and find that the spell had worn off finally, and that she had realized what had happened, what you had done to her. And you'd find yourself watching her more and more closely. You're looking for signs, covering your tracks hurting her away from people who had known her before the potion and had seen that transformation in her. Any, anyone or anything that re might remind her of her life before you. Now, every one of us knows it would be wrong to slip her that potion, but how many people would do it? When you're in the grip of a crush, you know, convinced that the two of you would be perfect together. And as you watch her fall into relationships with people who don't treat her half as well as you would, given the chance. Some people wouldn't do it. Maybe most people. But maybe not most people. Some people would. And people tell lies when they're trying to get a relationship started, all the time. They lie to give the other person a false sense of who they are, to create an image of themselves that the other person might be attracted to, which is essentially what the love potion would do. And the consequences are the same. Instead of lying awake at night worrying that the magic spell is going to wear off, you lie awake wondering if she, she'll discover your bullshit. Anyway, I've been running my mouth for a while now. You guys have been very indulgent, and I've been actually just trying for like the last 20 minutes to work my way back over to the actual topic of the podcast, and I'm failing. So I'm just going to make you guys suffer through an abrupt segue, or we're going to be here all day. Here's the point. Jim Jones was a liar. Okay, before he was anything else, and notwithstanding everything else I have said about him, he was a liar. And he told himself that his lies were in the service of a greater cause, but you know, lies told with good intentions corrupt just as surely as malicious slander. He covered up old lies with more lies, and in his paranoia at his lies being found out, over time, he turned people's temple into a totalitarian state in miniature. Not by himself, you know, many of his people, his inner circle, the planning commission of about 50 to 100 people, depending on which period we're talking about, and an inner, inner circle called staff, mostly made up of his female sexual partners. They were in on the lies. They participated in them, and sometimes they pushed him as much as he pushed them. All totalitarian systems work to undermine their subjects' sense of reality, to break up any relationships that are not mediated by the system, to get their subjects to say and do and go along with things that compromise themselves. 
and to create a system like the one Marshall McLuhan described as a whispering gallery in which virtually everyone is engaged in keeping everyone else under surveillance. We're compromised every time we nod our head along with something we don't believe to be true. And every time it happens, we lose the strength to refuse the next time. The critic Theodore Dalrymple once said that, quote, In my study of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponds to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even more when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is, in some small way, to become evil oneself. One's standing to resist anything is eroded and even destroyed. A society of emasculated liars is easy to control, end quote. Now, Dalrymple makes that point about moral compromise, but there's something even worse, even more insidious. Over time, we lose the perspective necessary to even know the difference between truth and lies, especially if we've been cut off from other ways of looking at things. The sociological concept of the imaginary, or, or the social imaginary, refers to the web of intersubjective symbols and assumptions that structure life in a given society. Deep assumptions, not, not superficial beliefs. The term's not referring to, say, a common agreement about whether the moon landing was real, but to a common agreement about whether it is appropriate or possible for a sane person to even ask a question like that. A totalitarian system, always, it builds up around a fragile social imaginary that is not going to be able to survive contact with the outside world. Cults have been pretty common in America over the years, partly because you know, our shared social imaginary has always been looser than in other places. And the grip of tradition has always been relatively weak here. And so there's more room politically, socially, psychologically. There's more room for people to split off and turn inward and start doing their, their own thing. You know, but some eras are more ripe than others for the proliferation of alternative ways. Space opens up when existing authority structures are destabilized or can't rise effectively to meet a challenge. Cults proliferated in Europe after the Reformation. It came after you know, the, the, the peasant wars of, uh, of, the, of the 1400s, after the Hundred Years' War and the Plague in the 1300s. You get the Reformation. Cults proliferate, but they became less common as the Catholic Church and the Protestant National Churches established their dominions. The 1960s counterculture movement sprouted up after faith in the ideas and the institutions and the people in power had been shaken by a youth rebellion that the adults of our society seemed unable to comprehend or control and, and by changes in media consumption patterns and by, by Vietnam, Watergate, you know, the violent resistance to the civil rights movement that people were watching on TV and just all of these things hitting at once. And I mean things being shaken up at a very deep level. You know, not merely that people's faith in LBJ or Nixon was shaken, or, or even their faith in Republicans and Democrats. The, the failure in Vietnam, for example, you know, that dealt a blow to the myth of the American frontier, you know, in which well-intentioned white-headed cowboys rode out to civilize wild foreign lands with grit and good old American firepower. That's a deep American myth that was just laid waste by Vietnam. 
That high-tech airborne slaughter broke an article of faith that had persisted all the way up through the 1950s, that, that through American ingenuity and elbow grease, you know, technology was going to make the world a better place. You throw in the 73 Arab oil embargo and the resulting gas shortages, a few hundred skyjackings in the late 60s and early 70s, a rash of high-profile car and plane crashes that killed a bunch of famous people. And instead of the Jetsons, which came out in 1962, in an expectation that technology was any moment now going to free mankind and save the world, in the 1970s, everything is about how technology was going to destroy the planet. And this was happening, something similar to that was happening at every level. And, and it affected the way that people perceived their country and their government, you know, global politics, the family, gender, sexuality, religion, everything. From a cultural standpoint, the 60s were the best of times and they were the worst of times. And 1969 was a fitting end of the decade. The counterculture had failed politically. They'd failed to impact the 68 election, but the air still seemed electric with possibility, especially on the cultural front. You just try to think, think of all the cultural events that happened just in 1969 alone. Out of Hollywood, you got Easy Rider and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The Beatles put out Abbey Road. Led Zeppelin released their first album. Creedence put out Bayou Country. Literature, you know, Mario Puzo published The Godfather, which isn't a great piece of literature by itself, but obviously left a mark. Vonnegut did Slaughterhouse-Five. Philip Roth had Portnoy's Complaint. Maya Angelou, you know, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. There were big student strikes at Harvard and Cornell in the spring, and then in the summer, the Stonewall Riot marked the awakening of the LGBT movement as a self-conscious political force. The moon landing was in July. Woodstock was in August. I mean, how often these days do we get books, you know, films, uh, albums that, that, that will be in heavy rotation 50 years from now? 1969 is just pumping out all-time greats like it's nothing at a time of massive political turmoil and gigantic, unprecedented technological and historical achievements. And yet, you know, as an end of the 60s, 1969 is not exactly remembered as a triumph. If the 60s were a house party, you know, 1969 was kind of that point at 2.30 a.m. when the music's bumping and you're drunk and you took some ecstasy that has you and your dance partner expressing your newfound and undying love for each other as the moment strains for this transcendent peak. But meanwhile, outside, two guys are getting into a fight and one of them's pulling a knife and someone's date raping a high school senior in the back bedroom and your dance partner's eyes are starting to go glassy and her skin is getting hot as her overdose starts to kick in. And the lights just came on because your parents are home early and they want to know why there's human feces in the mailbox. That's 1969. In the summer of 69, the hippie scene was one of the victims of Charles Manson's murder cult along with his actual, literal victims. When that happened, everybody knew where he'd come from. Everybody knew he'd come out of the Haight-Ashbury Summer of Love. And by 1969, you know, they knew that he had managed to insert himself into the Hollywood and Laurel Canyon music scene where he was proffering drugs and underage flower girls to L.A. celebrities who listened to his rambling theories about the power of LSD and the Beatles' White Album. And the Manson murders confirmed for a lot of people who had been watching the counterculture with increasing alarm that, that there was something dark and irrational and violent beneath all the flower crowns and tie-dyed shirts. 
You had the Zodiac Killer in 1969 in the Bay Area on a rampage, and that fed into the suspicion. We never did catch him to know his motives, but at the time, people saw it in those terms. In December of 1969, that silent majority that had elected Richard Nixon a year earlier, they got more validation of their concerns with the concert at Altamont Speedway, about 45 minutes east of San Francisco Bay. It's supposed to be a big West Coast Woodstock, and somebody thought it would be a great idea to have the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club provide security. And when it was over, you had four people dead, scores of people injured, and tons of property destroyed. And that's how the year ended. And so it would have been easy for the revolutionaries and the reactionaries to both believe that they were winning. But in reality, both sides were just being radicalized. In 1969 was the year that the culture war went kinetic. After Nixon's election and the widespread racial violence of the previous year, the police were finally let off the leash on the Black Panther Party. Local, state, federal, the, the cops went at them hard. And by 1969, most of the prominent leadership, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Ed, Eldridge Cleaver, they had all been taken off the board. Panther chapters had continued to spread out across the country, but the organization lacked strong central leadership or direction. I mean, they, they'd only existed for a, a little while, such a short period of time that, you know, the real purpose and methods of the party had not even really been fully worked out. And so the chapters in each city, they all went their own ways. Some of them more serious than others, some more focused on community work, others not really doing much at all, just kind of wanting to wear the Panther beret, others becoming basically criminal street gangs under the cover of the Panther flag. And some, they were reading their Malcolm and Fanon and Mao, and they were ready to get it on. But, you know, the lack of discipline and coordination, it just, it made them an easy meal for the local police and the FBI. The Panthers were scrambling for cover by 69. And in some cities, they were approaching something like open war with the cops. And not surprisingly, it was the New York Panthers that took things to the next level in early 69. New York has always had its own flavor of black radicalism, going all the way back to Marcus Garvey and even before him. And I don't even mean necessarily that they were more or less radical, just different. Until this year, the year I'm recording this, 2020, you never really saw the kind of wild violence you see out in California. You know, in, in the 65 Watts riots, the 92 LA riots, or, or in other cities around the country in the late 60s. There was some disorganized street violence here and there, you know, a riot in, a riot in Harlem in, in 64, but it didn't have anything like the scale or the destructiveness of the riots that you saw in other cities. But in a lot of ways, New York was a hundred times more radical than anywhere else, more serious and heavy. You know, think about it like, you know, if there was some kind of radical right-wing nationwide anti-government grassroots movement in the U.S. that was structured similar to the Panthers, it's probably a good bet that the Texas chapter would put its own spin on it, right? And go a little bigger and wilder in certain ways than you'd see in other places. Why? I don't know, because it's Texas. You know, Texas is Texas. Well, Harlem is Harlem. And while there are many centers of African-American cultural life in the northern states, you know, sections of Motown, the Fillmore, you know, other important centers of political thought, especially in Chicago, Harlem is still Harlem. W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Thurgood Marshall, uh, 
who Be- Bojangles, Harry Belafonte, Sammy Davis Jr., you know, uh, Langston Hughes, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. I'm not even scratching the surface. These are just off the top of my head some Harlem residents most people might have heard of. James Baldwin wrote out of Harlem. Malcolm X preached on Harlem's corners. When revolutionary leaders from around the world, like Fidel Castro or you know, the leaders of the newly independent African countries wanted to speak to the African diaspora in America. It wasn't to L.A. or Oakland or Chicago that they came. They came to Harlem. Harlem provided New York a cultural center, an intellectual and political leadership that black communities in the rest of the country usually lacked. And when African Americans began to politically awaken, they often looked to Harlem intellectuals for inspiration the fact that Harlem helped anchor such a unique and identifiable black cultural life and the fact that New York itself, just the the entire city, uh, is such a global city. It it helped black intellectuals there be the first ones to start seeing themselves as Africans in America, not just African-Americans. They felt a strong sense of solidarity and pride and hope when black nations back on the mother continent began to assert their independence and sovereignty. Not that black intellectuals and political activists in the rest of the country didn't appreciate that, but it was just more pervasive and real in New York. Nation of Islam had had its practice, you know, of having its members drop their slave names in favor of a symbol like Malcolm Little becoming Malcolm X, or else changing their names to full Arabic names like Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, but all over Harlem by the late 60s. You see... Black people dressed in dashikis, introducing themselves with black African names. You know, people who are going to factor big into this story, like Daruba Moore and and Sekou Odinga, Lumumba Shakur. Referring to the Panthers' national headquarters in Oakland, one New York City Panther put it, they, the, the Panthers in Oakland, they were more into the politics of communities in California. We were more African, they were more American. The great migration of American blacks out of the South proceeded in stages. New York, Baltimore, Chicago, these places were closer to the South and they were stops on passenger rail lines that were there going back to the beginning of the migration. It was not so easy to get out to the West Coast. And so the black communities in California had been established more recently. In New York, a lot of the Panthers' parents or grandparents had marched with Marcus Garvey during the First World War, or, or they could reach out to people who had. The NYC Panthers were more militant, more confrontational with the authorities, and in some ways they were more ambitious. And their ranks were filled with a lot more former bangers and criminals who had followed Malcolm's path to being radicalized while they were in prison. And when the Cold War against the cops started to turn hot, it was the New Yorkers that rushed to the front lines first. After the murder of Martin Luther King and an epidemic of racial violence in 1968, they decided to kick off 1969 with the bang. Almost two dozen New York Panthers planned simultaneous attacks on two police precinct houses in the Bronx and Manhattan and a third attack on the Board of Education office in Queens. The plan was that bombs would be set with the intention of starting fires to cause panic in the buildings, and snipers would be prepositioned outside to shoot people as they fled the buildings. Two of the plotters turned out to be undercover cops, however, and just before the attack went forward, the NYPD moved on the Panther 21 
as they became known, and all but one were arrested. See, America's got this superpower that kind of allows us to swallow up dissent with an efficiency that Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia could only really dream about. In those countries, dissidents end up in death camps and are turned into martyrs. In America, dissidents end up on fashionable t-shirts worn by middle-class white kids and are turned into consumer products. In America, radical dissent goes from insurgency to lifestyle option in no time at all. And to this day, no dissidents have really figured out a way around that trap. By the end of the 60s, radicalism had been embraced as a chic fashion choice, and, and that really took the teeth out of the movement. And it kind of exposed the folly of the kind of street theater tactics that were favored by much of the radical left in the late 60s. The tactics were based on the idea that the American brand of totalitarianism, you know, speaking from, from their perspective, was every bit as brutal and complete as any in the world. It was just more sophisticated and subtle. You know, people were controlled mostly by indoctrination and propaganda, so death camps weren't necessary. But for anybody who dared to venture outside the bounds of permissibility, the reaction was as swift and deadly as with the Gestapo. And so what the radical left had to do was to show people that. Get out in the streets, force confrontations, and say, look, look, see the cops beating us. See the violence underlying the system. But there were two problems that they didn't really plan for. And the first was that the calculated illegality of street theater actions, you know, they wanted to they wanted to bruise to show their friends, not a 10-year prison term, that they were pseudo-events. The Weatherman's Days of Rage in October 69, it wasn't a spontaneous riot that broke out after a police brutality incident. You know, they weren't looting. It was specifically designed to be picked up and replicated by the media. That was the whole point. But those tactics made the new left dependent on the very elite institutions it was trying to critique or bring down. It, it turned the whole movement into another TV show or a thing to do on Saturday night. The second problem was that a lot of the elites they were supposed to be striking out against loved this stuff. You know, the more damage they did, the more celebrities cheered them on from the safe distance of their penthouses and gated communities, of course. The philosopher Eric Hoffer in 1967, he wrote, Up to now, America has not been a good milieu for the rise of a mass movement. What starts out here as a mass movement ends up as a racket, a cult, or a corporation. In a more subtle formulation, the liberal social critic Christopher Lash wrote, quote, In the 60s, the new left attempted to overcome the insubstantiality of the establishment by resorting to politics of confrontation. By deliberately provoking violent repression, it hoped to forestall the co-optation of dissent. The attempt to dramatize official repression, however, imprisoned the left in a politics of theater, of dramatic gestures, of style without substance, a mirror image of the politics of unreality which it should have been the purpose of the left to unmask, end quote. But by the late 60s, the folly of this strategy was really coming into focus. The militancy of the New York Panthers was partly a reaction against this. You know, already, the Panthers had just gotten going in 67. Already by 69, they're becoming trendy, which is the last thing a revolutionary social movement that truly threatens the established order should be. You should not be trendy. And the Panther 21, and again, I'm talking about the subtext, 
in a way we're saying, you know, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to make a T-shirt out of us. It didn't really work because the trend, you know, it's very powerful, almost inexorable. It's the force that people are referring to when they say that the way to deal with Islamic extremism in the Middle East is, is not to drop bombs, but to drop blue jeans and American pop culture and sexual liberation on them. And it sounds like a peaceful alternative to bombs, but the message there is that the way to deal with radical Islam is to destroy everything that's unique about Islamic culture. Well, jihadists see it that way, at least, and, and their whole purpose is to let everyone know that that ain't going to happen. The left-wing youth movement tried to force confrontation, tried to stop that, but it was limited by its de demographic composition. You know, these were middle-class college kids who were running the show. They were throwing bricks through shop windows, and these were people who had never been in a fistfight. You know, they were out in force in the 68 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and they found out that none of the rhetoric, none of the theatrics meant squat when the Chicago PD pulled out their truncheons and put it on them. They responded by getting themselves more and more keyed up, you know, pushing the emotional intensity to try to gin up courage and a readiness for violence that their own lives had not really prepared them for. The weathermen took over SDS in the summer of the following year, 69, but you know, they ran into the same wall in October. The same wall, actually. You know, they spent the whole summer trying to rally troops for this apocalyptic rematch with the Chicago Police Department only to have the small number of people who showed up get their heads bounced off the pavement again, probably by many of the same officers. Former members of the Weathermen, like Mark Rudd, you know, they, they remember, Rudd's book, by the way, is of all the people who've written books about the period, I think Rudd's is probably the best, the most honest. Um, former members like him, they remember the humiliation after the days of rage. How they were hyper aware that a lot of people in the movement looked at them as a bunch of soft, spoiled, you know, LARPing college kids, LARPing as revolutionaries. It, it, this was an obsession with them. They spent the rest of the fall and winter working themselves up into a froth, you know, competing with each other to, to brag about the murder and mayhem that they were about to bring to pig America. You know, there's this one story from, from a former member who says that a, another member strangled a cat to death in front of everyone in a meeting to prove that he was really ready to kill. One weatherman named John Lerner remembered discussing plans with another member to put a bomb on a Chicago passenger rail track at rush hour to blow up people coming home from work. You know, a lot of them were talking like this, but, but not everyone was down with that uh, kind of indiscriminate killing. Brian Burrow wrote, quote, What constituted a legitimate target was a topic of sensitive discussions among the leadership. It was in these talks, according to Howard Mochtinger and one other person who was present, that the leadership agreed that they would, in fact, kill people. But not just any people. The people Weatherman intended to kill were policemen. If your definition of terrorism is, you don't care who gets hurt, we agreed we wouldn't do that, recalls Mochtinger. But as to causing damage, or literally killing people, we were prepared to do that. According to one side of the argument, says Mochtinger, if all Americans were compliant in the war, then everyone's a target. There are no innocents. But we did have a series of discussions about what you could do, and it was agreed that cops were legitimate targets. We didn't want to do things just around the war. We wanted to be seen as targeting racism as well, so police were important. Military personnel were ruled to be legitimate targets as well. The decision to attack policemen was an unspoken act of solidarity with the group whose approval mattered most to Weatherman leadership. Movement blacks, especially the Black Panthers, who reserved a special hatred for urban police. 
In our hearts, I think what all of us wanted to be were Black Panthers, Kathy Wilkerson recalls. And it was no secret what the Panthers wanted to do, which is what the Black Liberation Army did later, and that's kill policemen. It's all they wanted to do. End quote. The Black Liberation Army, which we'll talk about in a bit, wouldn't be formed until a little later by a group of New York Panther pipe hitters. Uh, the Panthers and the Black Radical Movement in general, they approached the whole situation very differently than the White Radicals. And for them, it wasn't a cause. It was life. The actions that they took concerned their own neighborhood, their own lives. And their ranks were filled by people cut from an entirely different cloth. You know, they had a lower class familiarity with violence, first of all. So they didn't flinch the way the middle class kids did whenever things jumped off. And, and they didn't have to work themselves up into a frothy psychosis, strangling cats to get through a physical confrontation. You know, plus, this was the old days. Things started really changing in the 80s and 90s when crack and guns started flooding the ghettos. Drug laws started pushing younger kids into the game. And, you know, it became a lot more Wild West than it was back then. The 20-year-olds in the late 60s, they grew up in the 40s and 50s. There was some gun violence, but back then, people threw down with their fists. And from an early age, boys fought all the time in the ghetto. It was just a part of life. It's still like this today to a degree. You just have to be more careful because kids are quicker to bring weapons into the picture. I moved around a lot when I was a kid, and sometimes I'd be in middle-class schools, and other times I'd be in schools where I was one of the only white kids, and most everyone else was poor, working-class, black, and Latino kids, and the difference is night and day. In the middle-class schools, most of the kids had never been in a fight. I went to, two, I don't know, 15 middle-class schools. Most of the kids had never been in a fight. In the poor schools... Everyone had been in many fights. You know, in the middle class schools, kids could pick on each other, you know, talk smack back and forth, and hardly ever would anything happen because at the end of the day, both parties are basically afraid of violence. In the poor schools, you run your mouth to one of the black or Latino kids, you, you better be ready to finish what you start because it's just a different dynamic. And so the police, you know, they were often slow to respond to the actions taken by the white radicals. And when they did go after them, it was kind of you know, like in Chicago. It was more out of contempt and annoyance than because they really considered them a threat. But the black radicals did not have that luxury. The cops came at them hard and fast. You know, most of the white radicals of this period, even the murderous ones, they were eventually allowed to creep back into polite society after public alarm about left-wing violence faded later in the decade. I mean, two two of the leading weathermen, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, the two of them got married after coming out of hiding in 1982. Everyone knew who they were and what they'd done. They, they, they were minor celebrities. Bill Ayers used his left-wing street cred to leverage himself into a nice career teaching at the University of Illinois in Chicago, literally living his life casually in neighborhoods where he'd previously tried to plan to kill people, and using his position at the university to speak against the law enforcement authorities who let him off the hook. His wife, Bernadine Dorn, also... Uh, you remember her from the last episode, you know, she led the weatherman rally with that four finger salute in honor of the fork that the Manson family had stabbed into Sharon Tate's pregnant belly. Yeah. Her, she comes out of hiding after a career of terrorism in the early seventies. She's hired onto a big law firm despite being rejected by the bar for refusing to disavow her role in weatherman's terrorist actions. You know, this was, is a very different dynamic in the early two thousands. Some of you might remember this from 2008, an aspiring 
Chicago politician named Barack Obama, you might have heard of him, launched his political career at a fundraiser in Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn's living room. In 2008, crusty old Republicans threw a fit, but you know no one remembers this stuff anymore, so the stink of attempted mass murder had washed off them by then. Maybe this is what people mean when they talk about white privilege, because this is not how it went for the black radicals. They were pursued by the police with military tenacity until the vast majority of them were in a cage or a coffin. At the same time that the weathermen were going underground and Bill Ayers was making his first feeble attempts at killing people with his Midwest sellout in Chicago, the Chicago Panther leader, Fred Hampton, was trying to get Chicago street gangs to stop killing each other and start putting their energy into community work and political action. And for that, Fred Hampton did not get tenure at the University of Illinois or a cushy job as a celebrity prop at a law firm. What Fred Hampton got was the cops having an informant slip him a sleeping potion and then breaking into his apartment and shooting him dead as he lay sleeping in his bed in a straight-up state-sanctioned assassination. It was shortly after that killing of Fred Hampton, that's when Weatherman went dark. They split up into three cells and they went to work. One cell on the West Coast, out of San Francisco, under Howie Mochtinger and, and Bernadine Dorn. The Midwestern cell was under Bill Ayers and based in Chicago. And there was an East Coast cell out of New York under Bill Ayers' best friend, Terry Robbins. And Terry Robbins, an interesting guy, very loose cannon. You know, he, he sort of had an obsession with violence and death that even put other weathermen kind of off a little bit. They described him, they have since described him as kind of having a death wish. He watched, uh, apparently, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid over and over, and he loved the ending when they all went out in a hail of bullets. In his 2011 book, Fugitive Days, Bill Ayers remembers Robin's obsessions. Quote, Terry studied the Blaster's Handbook, a publication of the explosive department of E.I. DuPont Corporation, his cranky notebook lying open on the ratty sofa, each inflamed sketch coiled tight, busy with detail, poised to detonate on the page. Pressure trigger device, nipple time bomb, magnifying glass bomb, cigarette fuse, alarm clock time bomb, homemade grenade, walking booby trap, Bangalore torpedo, book trap, pressure release gate trap, loose floorboard traps, whistle and pipe traps. There were detailed drawings of bridges, slab bridge, T-beam bridge, concrete cantilever bridge, truss bridge, suspension bridge with wild X's indicating the pattern of placements that would drop every goddamn thing into the water of the ravine below, and architectural sketches of the skeletons of numerous buildings, with the requisite accompanying fury of X's designed to doom the thing, reduce it to chaos. There were maps of highways with notes on sabotage and destruction. Page after page was filled with calculated steps for making high explosives with all but indecipherable formula. The formula for nitroglycerin, the formula for mercury fulminate, for dynamite, for chloride of azote, for ammonium nitrate, for black powder. The pigs need a strong dose of their own medicine, Terry said grimly, shoved down their throats, and up their asses, too. A napalm enema for Nixon. End quote. Terry Robbins was violent in real life, too. It wasn't just fantasy. He was at least violent toward his girlfriends. But Robbins was doing a short stint in jail after a demonstration in January 1970 when the weathermen went underground, so his New York cell would be the last of the three to get off. There was no coordination between the cells, by the way. Uh, there was an informal kind of race, though, to see who could get off first and make the biggest splash. And as it happened, it was the Bay Area Collective whose attack was launched to, uh, to, to kick things off. 
The Bay Area group holed up in an apartment, actually, on Geary Street in San Francisco, which I, I found out was just a handful of blocks from the building where People's Temple was holding its services and would pretty soon make its permanent base of operations. I've looked all over for some indication that the West Coast weatherman has some contact with Jim Jones people at this or any other time, because that would be an awesome coincidence to unearth, but I haven't been able to find anything. Uh, you know, the Bay Area radical left after 1970, it's a pretty small world. And so you see little coincidences like this a lot, but people were coming and going all the time. It's not like they had some central headquarters. Anyway, they got some dynamite and I, I love how I can just throw that out there casually. Yeah, they, they got some dynamite. Back then you could just walk into a construction supply store with a driver's license in most of the country and buy dynamite. It's a different time. So thanks a lot, Weatherman, because you're probably why I can't do that now. Anyway, they get some dynamite, they build a few pipe bombs, and they start scouting police stations looking for targets. On the night of February 12th, 1970, about a half dozen weathermen creep into the Berkeley police complex and they plant two alarm clock time bombs near cars in the motor pool. The bombs were set to blow a few minutes after midnight, right when there was supposed to be a shift change, when they knew from scouting that Dozens of officers from both shifts would be congregated out by the cars for turnover. When the first bomb went off, it blew out 30 plate glass windows in a building nearby. A bunch of cops were knocked down, and one got his arm mangled by shrapnel. The second bomb blew right as the officers were getting to their feet. One of the weathermen who took part in the operation said to Brian Burrow, quote, We wanted to do it at a shift change, frankly, to maximize deaths. They were cops, so anyone was fair game. Basically, it was seen as a successful action. But others, yeah, they were angry that policemen didn't die. There was no one that was anti-that. That was what we were trying to do. End quote. In the end, only about a half dozen cops were treated for bruises and broken eardrums, uh, in addition to the one who needed surgery to save his arm. So it was hardly the ribbon cutting that Weather was hoping for. And what made it worse is that, you know, things, it wasn't like today. If a group today let off two bombs at a police station, it would be national news, especially if someone yelled Allahu Akbar in the vicinity. But this was 1970, and the weathermen were not the only show in town, not by a long shot. In just the two weeks surrounding the Berkeley bombing, there were at least 17 acts of serious political violence around the country. You had Puerto Rican nationalists setting off two bombs in New York City on February 9th. There was a firebombing in Michigan, a police station bombing in Connecticut that injured four times as many cops as Weatherman's inaugural attack. So the Bay Area cells weak start just didn't rate. They probably tried again a few days later. On February 16th, another bomb, this time packed with one-inch fence staples, blew through a window and punctured the jugular vein of a police sergeant working inside. Another piece of shrapnel lodged in his brain, and most of the evidence, including testimony from an informant and members of the group, points to the weathermen, but none of them who would have been directly involved have ever come forward to claim it, and so officially the case is still unsolved. Out in the Midwest, Bill Ayers was determined to make a much bigger impact. He gathered up his cadres to discuss potential targets for a bombing or maybe a kidnapping. One member suggested kidnapping the vice president of the United States or the mayor of Detroit came up. We know what they discussed in detail because this was the one cell in which the FBI had managed to plant a quality informant. And the informant reported back every step as Ayers guided the group to the target that he had in mind. 
three cops were on trial in Detroit for the killing of three young black men during the 67 riot there. If you've seen the movie Detroit, it was that those guys. It's that, that incident. And the informant was present when Ayers brought it up, and he asked the group, where did those pigs get the money to hire decent lawyers? And then he answers his own question, the Police Officers Association. Ayers had decided that they were going to bomb the downtown headquarters of the Police Officers Association. We blast that fucking building to hell, and we do it when the place is crowded. We wait for them to have a meeting or a social event, and then we strike. And so Ayers pulls out a piece of paper with a map that he'd drawn by hand of the neighborhood surrounding the building, and he starts assigning tasks to members of the group as they're looking at the map. The FBI informant, who again was there, he testified that he pulled Ayers aside later and said that he had a problem with where they were placing the bomb, which was supposed to go on a window ledge facing a restaurant, which mostly served black customers. He pointed that out, and Bill Ayers just shrugged it off as collateral damage. We can't protect all the innocent people in the world. Some will get killed. Some of us will get killed. We have to accept that fact. So the group built two bombs. One for the Police Officers Association headquarters and another for a simultaneous attack on the city's 13th precinct house. And thanks to the informant, you know, Detroit PD located and removed both bombs before they could do any damage. So another fail. A few days, actually it's the third fail, a few days earlier in Cleveland, Another Midwest collective under Ayer's command also launched an attack with disappointing results. Their group of six or seven, which included two high school girls, uh, their plan was to surround the house of Detective Frank Schaefer, who was president of the Fraternal Order of Police in the middle of the night, and attack from all sides with Molotov cocktails to burn the sleeping detective and his family to death inside. But when the moment arrived, you know, they were just getting into position around the house and one of the kids apparently forgot the plan and just threw the firebomb at the front porch and everybody else panics. A few of them got their Molotov cocktails off and everybody just ran away. And so the detective woke up and ran outside and him and his son put out the fire on the porch. And so the weathermen are off to a great start. Uh, but Terry Robbins is back now, the hothead leader of the New York cell. He's out of jail and he is determined to show his bungling comrades how it's done. Robin Sell is not a democracy. He, he showed up, told them what they were going to do, handed out assignments for a multi-pronged attack in different parts of New York City. But after weeks of preparation, where no one was allowed to laugh or joke at meetings, and you know all they talked about were the grim necessities of war and life as a revolutionary, they just ended up throwing a few Molotov cocktails at police cars and military recruiting stations, which by 1970 was like a nightly occurrence in America, so no one cared. And Robbins himself had led a group to go bomb the home of a judge, which was overseeing a Black Panther trial, but all they did was blow out a few windows. And so Robbins goes insane. He's furious. And he'd spent a lot of time and energy playing himself as the tough guy, you know, uh, the ride-or-die revolutionary of the group. But his attack had come off just as weak and amateurish and inconsequential as everyone else's. And so as soon as it's over, he gets back to work planning something much bigger. Other weathermen even were worried about Robin's fanaticism, which is saying something in this group, but he was so aggressive that nobody would confront him. Robin said that with Molotov cocktails having become virtually an everyday thing in the country, the only way to break through the noise and get noticed was to do something really big. 
He said that he'd mastered the necessary skills to build a large dynamite bomb with an electronic trigger device and that they were going to begin searching for targets for a massive attack. But his girlfriend at the time, Kathy Wilkerson, who was part of the group, had a bad feeling about it. Quote, Terry had been an English major during his brief stint in college and a poet. Science was a foreign language and he hated it for being undecipherable. Because this left him powerless, he felt terrified. He understood no more about what electricity or dynamite were made of than I did, and he was considerably less interested. Terry's fear and dislike of anything technical could be overcome, I insisted. I tried to get him to see that it would be interesting to learn how all this worked. But his fear, his courage, and his rage against injustice were feeding into each other, creating a white heat. He was in a hurry, and he didn't want to mull over it too much. His fear would be overcome, he believed, by will. No one else seemed to be stepping up to the plate. Most people, even those in the movement, seemed willing to stand by while the United States rode roughshod over its victims. This infuriated Terry. We owed it to the Vietnamese to take some of the heat away from them. We owed it to the black movement to do the same. End quote. So Wilkerson believed Robbins when he said he was ready to die for this, but neither she nor the other members of the NYC collective were about that. But again, Robbins was potentially violent and volatile and intimidating. And before they knew it, they were kind of getting dragged along, following his instructions and making preparations to blow up a dance at an Air Force base in Fort Dix, New Jersey. The dance was going to be packed out with U.S. servicemen and their wives and girlfriends, hundreds of them. And the plan was to light the place up with a large dynamite bomb packed with roofing nails to maximize damage to human flesh. Robbins bragged to Mark Rudd that his next action would have blood running in the streets. When Rudd asked what he was planning, Robbins said, We're going to kill the pigs at a dance in Fort Dix. And so Robbins put aside his insecurities and promised this group that this time they were going to make an impact. And Wilkerson says, Terry had been told to do it in a certain way, and he was too insecure in his knowledge to debate it. He cut off the discussion. He was the leader, and he would take responsibility for how it was to be done. No one else spoke up. And so the New York weathermen had been scattered across the city, and it was making it difficult to coordinate. And so to streamline things, Kathy Wilkerson went to her parents and got their permission to stay in their Greenwich Village townhouse while they were out of town on vacation for a few weeks. And she invited the rest of the New York cell to stay over. It was a big place, four stories, and there was a basement with a workbench and tools and everything that Terry Robbins was going to need to build the bombs. In his book, Days of Rage, Brian Burrow describes the day of the attack. Quote, That Friday, March 6th, the day they planned to bomb the Fort Dix dance, everyone rose early at the townhouse. Terry Robbins and Diana Auten disappeared into the sub-basement to finish building the bombs. Teddy Gold walked to the Strand Bookstore, where he ran into Kathy Bowden's mother, Jean. Ted, Ted, Jean said, kissing Gold on his bearded cheek. She knew Gold stayed in touch with his, her daughter. Do you think Kathy will pick herself up and go to NYU Law School in the fall, she asked. No, Gold said, his voice cracking from a cold. Is she living in Manhattan? Sort of, Gold said. Jean Bowden rolled her eyes and smiled. She had been around leftists enough to know not to ask more. Back at the townhouse... Kathy Wilkerson busied herself stripping the beds and straightening up the rooms. 
Her father and stepmother were due back from St. Kitts this afternoon, and everyone had to be gone, the house thoroughly cleaned for their arrival. After Gold returned from the strand, Wilkerson tossed the sheets in a washer and started vacuuming. While others finished up the disguises they would wear that night, she unfolded an ironing board in the kitchen. Barefoot, her toes wriggling on the carpet, she had just begun pressing the wrinkles from a sheet when Gold came up the basement stairs. Robbins needed cotton balls, and Gold said he was running to the drugstore to buy some. Wilkerson nodded. Overhead, water coursed through the pipes. Kathy Bowden had just stepped into a second-floor shower. A moment later, a few minutes before noon, as Wilkerson ironed sheets by the dull gray light of a kitchen window, everything, the townhouse collective, the weatherman organization, every thought of armed revolution, every student militant across the nation dared harbor, changed forever. Suddenly, Wilkerson felt a shockwave ripple through the house, along with a deep rumbling from below. The ironing board began to vibrate. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion. Still standing, the hot iron in her hand, Wilkerson felt herself begin to fall as fissures appeared in the carpet at her feet. Geysers of splintered wood and plaster filled the air. A second, louder explosion came then. The floor gave way and Wilkerson felt herself sinking. She had the presence of mind to toss the iron to one side. She was dimly aware of a dull red glow somewhere beneath her. When she stopped falling, everything went black. The two explosions eviscerated the townhouse, destroying the first floor and blowing a great hole in its brick facade. Above, the top floors hung like a set of trembling balconies, ready to fall at any moment. Up and down 11th Street, windows blew out. Shattered glass sparkled like diamonds on the sidewalk. All across Greenwich Village, heads turned at the sudden booms. A block away, walking on Fifth Avenue, Jean Bowden felt the explosion, stepped toward it, and saw the townhouse in flames. She had no idea her daughter was inside. The first officers on the scene, a patrolman named Ronald Waite, who had been guarding a school crossing around the corner, and a housing authority cop named Vincent Calderon, who had just left a doctor's office nearby, arrived within moments of the explosions. Running up to the house, Waite tried to enter but was driven back by billowing white smoke. He dashed away, looking for help. Seeing no entry through the front of the townhouse, Calderon sprinted through an adjoining house and circled to the rear of the Wilkerson home, where he encountered a padlocked door and barred windows. Inside, Kathy Wilkerson was regaining her senses. Miraculously, she was unhurt. Her face was coated in soot and dust she could barely see. She was seized by the need to find Robbins and Auten. "'Adam!' she called, using Robbins' code name. "'Adam, are you there?' Standing at the back door, Officer Calderon heard her words. As yet, he had no sense that a crime had been committed. His only thoughts were of rescuing survivors. Fearing that the building would collapse at any moment, he drew his service revolver and fired several shots into the heavy padlock. It did nothing. Just then, the house began to quiver, as if about to fall. Calderon backed away from the door. "'Adam!' Wilkerson asked once more. A voice answered, asking for help. It was Kathy Bowden, somewhere close by in the rubble. "'Are you okay?' Wilkerson asked. "'I can't see,' Bowden said. It was the dust. Wilkerson was dimly aware of flames. She sensed that they had barely ten or fifteen seconds before the fire reached them. Groping blindly, she inched left along the edge of what appeared to be a crater, reaching for Bowden. 
They touched hands, then grasped them. Wilkerson, still barefoot, took a step or two across the rubble, trying to reach what appeared to be a shaft of daylight in front of her. She could hear the flames building behind them. A few steps more, and she managed to pull herself and bowden up and rise, up a rise and out of the crater. Just then, a third explosion erupted from beneath the rubble at the back of the house. The force of it blew a massive hole in the wall of an adjoining building, which happened to house an apartment occupied by the actor Dustin Hoffman and his wife. Hoffman's desk fell into the hole. Behind the house, the blast knocked Officer Calderon from the door. As flames erupted from the rear windows, he stumbled and ran. As he did, Wilkerson and Bowden clawed over the last of the rubble and emerged onto the sidewalk, dazed. Wilkerson wore nothing but blue jeans. Her blouse had been blown off. Bowden was nude. Other than cuts and bruises, the two women had not been seriously hurt. A man in a white coat, a doctor passing the scene, helped them to their feet. A neighbor, Susan Wagner, the ex-wife of the actor Henry Fonda, appeared and threw her coat around Bowden's shoulders. Is there anyone else in there? she asked. Yes, Wilkerson mumbled as chunks of the townhouse's facade fell onto the sidewalk. Maybe two. Come to my house and I'll get you something to wear, Wagner said leading the two shaken women down the sidewalk. Inside, she guided the pair to an upstairs bathroom, tossed towels on the floor inside, then jogged to a closet where she pulled out two pairs of jeans, a pink sweater and a blue turtleneck, a pair of pink patent leather go-go boots, and a set of olive green slippers. She left them outside the bathroom. A hand reached out and took them. Regaining her senses, Wilkerson knew they had only minutes before the police arrived. She and Bowden showered quickly. When Wagner left, Wilkerson crept from the bathroom and rifled through a set of closets in search of money or a subway token, anything they could use to flee. She found a token, then grabbed Bowden and trundled down the stairs to the front door, where Wagner's housekeeper said they shouldn't leave. The sound of sirens was already filling the air as Wilkerson insisted that they needed to go to the drugstore and buy burn ointment. Before the woman could answer, they were out the door. They fast-walked down the sidewalk, hoping to avoid notice, and as the first fire trucks arrived behind them, made their way to the subway and vanished. Burrow continues. In the first hour, most of the firefighters assumed it was an accidental gas explosion, but the senior detective on the scene sensed that something was amiss. The police set up a command post in a basement across the street, which soon filled with the city's fire chiefs and a milling squadron of clean-cut FBI men. All that afternoon they watched as the fire consumed what remained of the townhouse. By dusk, flames still raged at the rear, while the front had crumbled into a massive heap of smoking, red-hot rubble two stories high. All that evening the rubble cooled and firefighters began to take shovels to the top layers. Around seven, there were shouts from the debris. They had found a body, a young man with red hair lying crushed in the rubble with his mouth wide open. He was loaded into an ambulance and taken to the coroner's office for identification. Cranes were wheeled in. All weekend, they lifted the rubble and dumped it into waiting trucks. A crane was still gouging out loads of debris Tuesday morning when a detective thought he saw something. He held up his hand for the crane operator to stop. The man jumped to the ground alongside him. Is that? he asked. Holy Mary, Mother of God, the detective breathed. There... Hanging from the teeth of the bucket were bits and pieces of a human body. An arm with no hand, a shredded torso, a set of buttocks, a leg without a foot, all of it studded with roofing nails. They looked for a head but never found one. 
The coroner would later identify the remains as Diana Lawton's. The crane operator was just finishing his shift at 5 o'clock and lifted out the final load of the day. The big bucket splashed into a hole in the middle of the rubble, now filled with seven feet of black rainwater. When the bucket rose, the detective lifted his hand again. Between the bucket's teeth was a gray, basketball-sized globe. The detective stepped closer and peered at the muddy orb. It was studded with roofing nails and encrusted with dripping protuberances. It took a moment for the detective to realize what they were. Blasting caps. Slowly it dawned on him. The entire blob was made of dynamite. Enough explosives to blow up the entire block. The senior detective would say it was the single largest explosive device ever seen in Manhattan. The block was evacuated. The bomb squad called in. Working through the night, they whisked the dynamite away, then found 57 more bright red sticks deep in the rubble, along with all the wristwatches, coils of orange fuse, and blasting caps Robins, Robins had secreted into the sub-basement. By the following Saturday, the rubble had almost been cleared. The deep pool of rainwater drained, and detectives were able to begin inspecting what remained of the walls and foundation. That morning, a detective glimpsed what appeared to be a piece of pinkish-brown rug wrapped around a sewer pipe in the sub-basement. Only when he unrolled it did he realize he was holding human flesh. It was all that remained of a man's torso, and it was all they would ever find of Terry Robbins. End quote. This disaster devastated the Weatherman organization. I'll refrain from calling it a tragedy since those bombs were meant for hundreds of U.S. servicemen and their dance partners that same night. Even though the Weather Underground's most famous actions mostly lay in the future, the group would never recover from the townhouse. That's how the incident became known in the movement. You just had to say the townhouse and everyone knew what you meant. You know, Ever since the townhouse... People would say, or, or you could mark time by using it as a reference. When did that happen? Oh, it was about three months before the townhouse. And for all their talk, these privileged kids never really expected any serious consequences for what they were doing. In the future, their antics, you know, such as placing small bombs in the restrooms of the Pentagon or the U.S. Capitol building and busting Timothy Leary out of a minimum security jail. He basically just walked out and they picked him up. You know, they took on the air of slightly dangerous pranks committed by kids who knew that they weren't risking much even if they got caught. They used the stunts as exploding press releases, basically, to garner attention for communiques and manifestos that would focus on increasingly obscure issues. It's it, it, increasingly obscure as the Marxist jargon that cluttered the paragraphs while Bernadine Dorn and the other weathermen bigwigs laid low on a comfortable houseboat in Sausalito, California, or in a nice SoCal bungalow with good food and an endless supply of drugs, while some of the less fortunate young radicals that they inspired to go underground scraped by in fear and poverty with no support and no direction from leadership. When the band finally got back together in 1974 to try to reassert its position in the movement by releasing a manifesto called Prairie Fire, you know, the Vietnam War was over by then, and Nixon was on the cusp of leaving office, so there was nobody left to really care. In the intervening years, what remained of the radical left had become dark and violent in ways which the middle-class sensibilities of the weathermen were only really capable of fantasizing about. 
At the end of the day, Weather Underground was just a group of people who were utterly compromised by the system that they were trying to fight. They had a lot to lose, but really very little chance of losing it, except by their own hand, as happened here. And their political actions came more to resemble the antics of children running away from home after screaming abuse at their indulgent parents, knowing all the time that the parents will always take them back. Jim Jones never really had much time for white radicals like the Weathermen, or if he did, there's no record of it. He gladly welcomed them into the temple. You know, he would, if they came in, he would fast track them to leadership positions once he knew that they were serious, but he didn't really associate with them or, or talk a lot about other white leaders or, or white groups. He did everything he could to curry favor with the Panthers, with the American Indian movement, even the Nation of Islam later on, and to represent himself in the temple as adjacent to those groups, but not so much the student radicals or the other parts of the movement that were dominated by white activists, probably because he saw them as potential competitors. From the time they emerged on the scene, the weathermen, by taking over buildings at Columbia, in the heart of the New York media universe, the activists who had become the weathermen, they were subsumed by their own public images. 21-year-old Mark Rudd out there playing Che Guevara on the cover of Newsweek, holding his fist in the air. The glittering image of Bernadine Dorn during the heady years of 68 and 69. These things became, these images became more real than the young people behind them. And they were young. You know, they were like child celebrities working out their core personalities in front of a live studio audience. It's impossible, whenever you read their words, to avoid noticing that these celebrity protesters saw the movement as being primarily about themselves. Not the Vietnamese, not black people, not anyone but themselves. Not to say they didn't really care about the issues at play. You know, superheroes care about the people they save. But at the end of the day, the story is about the superhero, not the people. The people are there to give the hero an opportunity to shine. Christopher Lash the liberal critic I, I quoted from earlier in his book, Culture of Narcissism, described how in the 1970s, and he was a part of this, he was, he was right there to look at it and see it when it happened, how radical politics in the 70s moved away from being really very political at all and instead became more and more kind of a therapeutic enterprise focused on self-discovery or feelings of belonging and alienation, self-esteem. The politics of community action and collective demands gave way to a new politics based on, you know, individual life satisfaction and, and framing that as identitarian grievance. And the result is kind of what passes for identity politics today, where political leaders hold hearings over whether Google and Goldman Sachs are hiring enough racially and gender diverse employees from Harvard and Princeton or express their outrage over the relative lack of directors of color at the Oscars. Meanwhile, the ghetto itself rots from the inside, and you would be hard-pressed to even find a left-wing political leader spending half an ounce of real energy or political capital on that. Lash draws from the memoir of one member of the Weather Underground to illustrate his point. Quote, Radical politics filled empty lives, providing a sense of meaning and purpose. In her memoir of the Weathermen, Susan Stern describes their attraction in language that owes more to psychiatry and medicine than to religion. When she tried to evoke her state of mind during the 1968 demonstrations at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, she wrote instead about the state of her health. 
I felt good. I could feel my body supple and strong and slim and ready to run miles and my legs moving sure and swift underneath me. A few pages later, she says, I felt real. Repeatedly, she explains that association with important people made her feel important. I felt I was part of a vast network of intense, exciting, and brilliant people. When the leaders she idealized disappointed her, as they always did, she looked for new heroes to take their place, hoping to warm herself in their brilliance and to overcome her feeling of insignificance. In their presence, she occasionally felt strong and solid, only to find herself repelled when disenchantment set in again by the arrogance of those whom she had previously admired and by their contempt for everyone around them. Many of the details in Stern's account would be familiar to students of the revolutionary mentality in earlier epics. The fervor of her revolutionary commitment, the group's endless disputes about fine points of political dogma, the relentless self-criticism to which members of the sect were constantly exhorted, the attempt to remodel every facet of one's life in conformity with the revolutionary faith. But every revolutionary movement partakes of the culture of its time, and this one contained elements that immediately identified it as a product of American society in an age of diminishing expectations. The atmosphere in which the weathermen lived, an atmosphere of violence, danger, drugs, sexual promiscuity, moral and psychic chaos, derived not so much from an older revolutionary tradition as from the turmoil and narcissistic anguish of America at the time. Her preoccupation with the state of her psychic health, together with her dependence on others for a sense of selfhood, distinguished Susan, Susan Stern from the kind of religious seeker who turns to politics to find a secularized salvation. She needed to establish an identity, not to submerge her identity in a larger cause. End quote. That impulse to make the movement about yourself, again, is the great temptation of all leaders, activists, and revolutionaries. And it is such a strong temptation because it never presents itself in those vulgar terms. No megalomaniac who ever made a social movement or a whole country into an extension of his own being thought that that's what he was doing at the time. The temptation presents itself as necessity or even as truth. This was at the core of the temptations of Christ in the gospel story I mentioned earlier. You know, in that story, Jesus didn't give in to the temptation, but most do. Because it is written, God is no respect to persons. Out of one blood, he made all nations. That's why I have Jesus' blood. There's only one blood. Now, if he appeared to Nebuchadnezzar, who was a racist who owned slaves... Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon in the fire furnace, he looked out there, he saw Ashak, Meshach, Abednego, and then, baby, he looked and he saw Jesus Christ, God. Right? That's what he said. He said he saw four. Solomon saw him, and he said his hair was as black as a raven. Well, I'm pretty close to it. And I, some, I got some idiots that say, I dye my hair. That's my hair, baby. All right, now, if God appeared to Nebuchadnezzar and Solomon and my hair ain't dyed, this is mine. And if he appeared to all the prophets, major and minor, Moses saw him, said, saw him and spoke with him as a man would face to face. Jacob! 
met him and wrestled with him all night with a, like a man. He was fighting with him like a lot of folk do with me. They just don't want to accept the truth. They got an old black book. All this ever did. This man that wrote this black book put the early whites in slavery, took the blacks in the first ship, Jesus, and brought them back from Africa. Here's the man that did it, King James of England. He was a whoremonger, alcoholic, and a slave owner. He was a drunk. He did every devious thing you could think of. He cut out the books of Barnabas, the books of Apocrypha, the books of Wisdom. He cut them all out. It was King James that took us from our slave, into our slavery, from our beautiful homes in the far country. Took us from the Abraham promised land into this harrowing, this harrowing, harrowing and horrendous slave country. Now I say to you, if God would appear to the Jews in the form of Jesus and not to blacks and poor whites and the downtrodden of the earth today, if you couldn't see God and yet God would appear to the Jews, he would be guilty of discrimination. I've adopted eight babies. I took 200 in that were starving. Some of you can't know that. It's your first time here. But if you go up to Redwood Valley and look all over there, there's a little miniature. Oh, how beautiful Brother Haywood has got it. How beautifully he's got it. That's just like our main mother church at the temple. All of our buses, our children's home. Over here, our seniors home. Then across the street in those beautiful trees, our lovely convalescent home. And there's white and black, and they're throwing their Bible down. Hey, God, oh, stay in the God. Never, never in the history of mankind has a black book done so much in infamy as this book. It brought blacks in chains. It murdered the Indians till there's not one hardly left. Their tribes are gone. Their religion is gone. Their culture is gone. The Mexican people, their whole nation was robbed from them, the Mexican Indians, in the name of this black book. That's what you're supposed to do. Cast down every idol. Cast down every idol. This is an idol because it murders. Anything that murders is an idol. Anything that kills is an idol. It's a paper idol. It's kept you in slavery. It's kept women in slavery. Right now, a man's average salary is $9,000, but a woman's average salary is 4000 A woman can work hard as a man, but she'll get 4000 and a man gets nine. Why? Because the women are taught by King James to obey, to be Subject to their husband. What subject mean? Be a slave to their husband. I didn't know I was going to preach so long, but baby, I'll preach the truth all day long if I have to. Peace. Some people are saying out there, there are too many pictures of Jones. I said, until people get away from the pictures of an unknown God, until they take away white angels and white Jesuses, my picture shall remain. It's very well with me. It's very well with me if you want to put up a picture of Harriet Tubman. She was a mighty epistle. If you want to put a, put, a, put up a picture of this black Moses, Harriet Tubman, but I'm tired of looking at Jesus as you never saw. So we'll have a right. This is our house. You didn't pay a penny of it. No Christian churches, no Bible-toting people paid a dime of this place. We worked enslaved. This is the people's house, and we'll put in here what pleases us.
say, well, that's idolatry. No, I'm alive. An idol is something that's dead. An idol means something that is dead. And if you think I'm dead, then you're mighty awfully blind and you're pretty deaf because I'm lively in every body, in every atom, in every cell of my bodily form. Oh, yes, I. The narcissism wasn't an affliction Jim Jones suffered alone. Many of the activists coming into the temple were people just like that weatherman, Susan Stern, that I just described by that last quote. Not all of them. You know, there were exceptions. In the last episode, I read a note from the temple's chronicler, Dick Tropp, in which he said that the great joy of serving in the temple was that he'd found a center of gravity for his life other than himself. There's a way that such humility can become just another avenue that circles back around a pride, but for some of the dedicated members, it was not that. But many of the radical refugees from other movements, people flowing in from that collapsing Bay Area scene were, like Susan Stern, you know, not looking to submerge their identities in a larger cause like Dick Trapp was, but to establish an identity in the first place. And for people like that, if they find something that gives them a little taste, they will put up with a lot rather than give that identity back and risk being back to square one. One of Jim's most devoted female followers, Sharon Amos, who actually, I misspoke about her in the last episode, I think, um, and described her as the woman who found her way to People's Temple after fleeing her home when her schizophrenic mother tried to strangle her with the leash of the family dog. That was not Sharon Amos. That was another member of the inner circle named Terry Buford. Um, I think I switched them up last time. But anyway, Sharon Amos had wandered in through the San Francisco beatnik scene in the early 50s and made her way through the Berkeley protest movement in the 60s and played around without much seriousness in the you know, pop Zen Buddhism going around, various group therapy fads, a socialist dance school and a left-wing theater group and kind of flitted in and out of multiple short-lived marriages. Prior to finding the temple, Amos remembered, quote, I found nothing to belong to or make any commitment to. I wanted to commit my life to something. This is a woman with three children. The author Shiva Naipaul wrote, quote, Jim Jones was a beachcomber, picking up the flotsam and jetsam washed ashore from the 60s shipwrecks. The idealism on which he fed was not virginal, but considerably shop-soiled, eaten up with inner decay, end quote. Another important inner circle member, Debbie Layton, came from a wealthy left-wing family in the Bay Area, but she had spent her high school years running away from home to hang out with Hell's Angels, and at one point attempting suicide by cutting her wrists. And she wrote in her book on, on the People's Temple that she would spend her lunch money on speed, red downers, and mescaline. I smoked opium with college kids at lunchtime and dropped acid in math class. As an attractive white woman and a sister of one of Jim's most devoted lapdogs, Debbie Layton was very quickly moved close to Jim Jones, and given her previous experiences, it's not surprising that she lacked the perspective necessary to recognize what was happening when, on one of the temple's long bus rides, Jim casually but firmly walks her back to his closed cabin, removes her clothes, and just begins having sex with her with hardly a word passing between them. When the bus stops, he orders her to get dressed and tells her that, she would wait a few minutes until after the bus had been cleared, and then she would leave in order to avoid embarrassment. For her, of course. 
know, this aspect of the mentality of a cult member and that of someone in an abusive relationship. They're not even similar. They're the same. One young girl named Jeanette Kearns came into the temple around the summer of 71. She was a surfer from Florida whose parent was a temple member that convinced her to come out to California to try out the temple's college program. The temple would pay tuition and other costs for some young members, put them up in these communal dorms that the temple owned, hoping that the education and skills they picked up would later be put to good use in service of the temple's goals. And so given that Jeanette Kearns was the daughter of an existing member, Jim Jones wanted to keep her happy. And so he didn't put her into the collective dorms right away. He knew the culture shock of going straight into the temple dorms would be pretty serious. The, the colleges and universities at this time were still major centers of political radicalism in the Bay Area, and the Temple College program was a major vector by which that radicalism leaked into the temple itself. Tim Reiterman, in his book Raven, describes the environment, quote, the temple's college dormitories were born simply and innocently enough at the end of the 1960s as communal-style housing for a few temple youths. Ideally, these rented duplexes were to provide a home environment for serious students attending Santa Rosa Junior College, allowing young temple members to gain a higher education without falling victim to outside influences. The structure did not permit outside political activities, let alone romance and recreation outside the communal context. The student housing project evolved from just a few men and women into a church institution with 30 to 40 students. Most took up residence brimming with idealism and talked of devoting their lives to helping other people, as their leader had. They targeted socially useful careers and occupations. Like many other college-age college people, they sought a resolution between political ideals and their own ambitions and interests. In discussing ways to contribute to this miserable world's betterment, the students came up with an ambitious idea. We could build a hospital. The very words sent ripples of idealism through these would-be doctors, dentists, nurses, therapists. Their hospital, they decided, would never reduce a human being to a mere gallstone or root canal fee. More practically, such skills would provide the temple with a full range of social and health services. Temple college students lived in a middle-income Santa Rosa neighborhood. About a dozen young men roomed in a half-duplex, and about two dozen young women occupied a full duplex across the street. Accommodations were makeshift and crowded, but no more austere than those for students in many college towns. The students cooked their own meals, ate communal style, rotated the chores. They were provided with transportation to and from school in a carpool arrangement, using their own cars and temple gas money. They tried to take the same classes so they could tutor one another and study together. In most respects, it was like other college dorms, with the tedious routines broken by cookouts, some socializing, dancing in sports, even wrestling and water fights. Personalities ran the range from extremely serious students to cut-ups, from popular students to outcasts. The dorms were governed not only by peer pressure, but also by an external bureaucracy. Their often restated fealty to the temple, however, was a source of pride as well as control. At least the temple young people had an outlet for their activist energies, more meaningful and more enduring than many of the issue-oriented outbursts of the 1960s. All in all, the dormitory arrangement was not a bad trade-off for those committed to the temple. End quote. That's not so bad. Let's see what author Jeff Gwynn has to say about it. From his book Road to Jonestown, quote, Jones appointed 
a college committee of adult temple members who were charged with visiting the students every Tuesday night to offer advice concerning any problems and to check on their grades. Those not maintaining decent class averages could give the outside world a bad impression of People's Temple and might, at Jones' direction, be removed from school at any time. Besides faithfully attending classes and studying late into the night, the students were also expected to attend temple services and be constantly on call. The only thing that trumped school obligations was serving the temple in whatever way Jones wanted. When Jones ordered participation in a demonstration, a bus stopped in Santa Rosa for the college kids. On weekends, the students were also expected to participate in weapons training. It was the younger followers' obligation to defend senior members in the event of world war or any other life-threatening scenario. Jones expected a lot of the college students, including their gratitude. In his view, no one owed the church more. Occasionally, one of the temple's Santa Rosa students rebelled and left both the school and the temple. One young woman fled after Jones took her to task for practicing vegetarianism. All the other students ate meat. By being different, she was effectively raising herself above them, acting elite. When she was forced to eat a few bites of chicken, she ran away. There was no attempt to persuade her to return. She'd proven herself unworthy. End quote. Back to Reiterman. Quote, In addition to long church meetings, the dorm students were following another agenda. New students found themselves living among young people who talked some day of being urban guerrillas or dying for socialism. Like communards in Berkeley, Ann Arbor, and elsewhere, the dorm students had mandatory study groups in Marxism and socialism. Certain leftist books were required reading. Jones had condoned and fed a more radical-than-thou attitude among his young followers. He converted the dorms gradually into a training center for his future professionals his socialist vanguard, end quote. Now, I, there, there, Reiterman's book is great. Um, it's, it's probably the best and most complete history of the movement. I think I mentioned that before, and I may have also told you before, it suffers from a major problem, in my opinion. Throughout the entire book, Raven, Reiterman often, it, it, it reads like Jim Jones' guiding hand is behind every troubling thing that ever went on in or around the church, whether or not there's really any evidence for that. You know, the truth is that the students did not need Jim Jones' encouragement to engage in student radicalism because they were already surrounded by it on campus. You know, they were part of that world. Jim may have stoked the fire and played into it and played it up, but there was no need for some grand plan, you know, to, to change these places into a socialist training center. Reiterman continues, quote, Students discussed issues such as Vietnam and South Africa. They also researched corporations supporting or benefiting from the war, and they studied the effects of nuclear fallout. The church monitored the progress and content of the classes. Jones would often check with student leaders for an assessment. The pastors seemed pleased usually, but on several occasions he ordered actions that seemed contrary to education about socialism. At Redwood Valley and in college dorms, there were purges of socialist books and books that the U.S. government might perceive as subversive. In the valley... Men in pickup trucks made, sweep of temple re made sweeps of temple residences, collecting books for burning or burying. The college students were trusted to purge their own bookshelves, end quote. And so, not wanting to throw Jeanette Kearns into this lion's den right away, Jim places her with Tim and Grace Stone in their house. It was the first person that they had actually boarded, but Jeanette and Grace were similar in age, and they actually very quickly became friends. You know, the two were, uh, they, they shared a lot of interest. You know, they, they would go shopping on the sly, which is not something they were supposed to be doing. You know, it was very materialistic of them. And they would gossip about other members. 
late teenagers, early 20s, these two. When they were alone, they would make fun of the most self-righteous members who would make a show of licking the ground that Jim Jones walked on. But when Jim would visit, Jeanette would see this change in Grace. She noticed that even Grace would straighten up and treat him with reverence and wait on him hand and foot. But Jeanette Kearns, you know, she was impressed mostly with what she'd seen of the temple so far. And so after a few months, she moved out of the stone house and into the church college dorms. It took very little time at all before she began to see things differently. Reiterman describes her experience, quote, Kern stood out among the temple students, a blonde ex-surfer with a bank account, jewelry, and fashionable clothes, and the others resented her. One night in the dorm living room, when the students were analyzing the problems of another temple woman and Kearns volunteered to help with her studies, the tables turned suddenly. Let's talk about you, someone said. A mild catharsis session became an unfettered purge of pet peeves. Kearns was informed that her classical and surfing music, her dressing habits, and bleached light brown hair offended the others. From accusations of vanity, they leaped to racism. I like my hair, and I like the way I am, she cried, fighting back. If I was racist, why would I live with you? Confused and intimidated, she unintentionally revealed her disenchantment on a holiday trip to Seattle and Vancouver. Jones turned to her at lunch one day. You've been thinking about leaving, haven't you? He probably read it on her face or had heard about the conflicts. Trapped, she admitted. Yeah, I have. You can leave, Jones said kindly. But you won't be able to finish college. Give it another try. It'll be better when you get back to the dorms, and you can grow from this experience. You're a humanist. At that time, she was flattered by Jones' sensitivity. His encouragement worked. She resolved to try again. At the dormitory, her popularity declined nonetheless. The students had vowed to stamp out every remnant of middle-class consciousness. Once a catharsis session developed because Jeanette was wearing her glasses too far down on her nose, a sure sign of snobbishness. People began to call her names. One white woman, who was accepted by the blacks because of her Jewish heritage, leaped to her feet, slapped Kearns across the face, knocking off her glasses, and then shoved her into a corner. Others jumped on her before it was stopped. Sobbing, Kearns ran out and packed her clothes. The others blocked the doors and would not allow her outside until she calmed down. Leaving was more difficult than it had been on the bus trip. She was more securely locked into the church because, in seeking acceptance and peace, she had donated most of her savings. The temple was her ticket through school, her only foreseeable means to the education she had worked for years to finance. Besides, staying was, the, staying was the only way to really keep in contact with her mother and brother, who were church members. Locking her jaw and sweating out nightmares that caused her to jump in her sleep, she decided to get a good education in spite of her tormentors. End quote. These struggle sessions were not unique to people's temple or their dorms. In fact, they were standard in communist revolutionary movements throughout the 20th century, small and large. The Bolsheviks in Russia instituted them all the way back immediately after the revolution to maintain discipline within the party, and then in the universities once they took power to ferret out counter-revolutionary tendencies in the academic environment. And then they spread to the rest of society. David Priestland, in his book on the history of communism, wrote, quote, Academics were worked over or subjected to aggressive questioning in public meetings. If they were discovered to be in error, they had to confess their sins. 
This was the root of the criticism and self-criticism campaigns of the Stalinist period and influenced the struggle sessions used later by the Chinese Communist Party, experienced by the Chinese students of Moscow's Communist University or the Toilers of the East. Such confrontational methods of interrogation also had much in common with the Agit trial, a form of theatrical propaganda developed in the Red Army. These mass spectacles in which for instance, soldiers participated in trials of actors playing capitalists and white Russians were to become the basis of, of the Stalinist show trial, end quote. Stalin wrote that criticism, self-criticism was as necessary for communists as air or water. Reforming human beings into men and women fit for communism, especially in the face of a corrupting world, it took work. I remember in military boot camp the first thing that they do when you arrive to boot camp is put you under extreme stress people shouting and shuttling you around one place to another you don't know how long it's going to go or what the next evolution is and you're very disoriented and then they give you the same haircut and put you in the same clothes and one of the first things you learn is that drill instructors are not interested in excuses or explanations of any kind they would put you in these impossible positions where they would toss up your bed and living area and then order you to have it cleaned up within 20 minutes and then they would leave and then another drill instructor would come along and order you to do something else for like 18 of those 20 minutes and then at the 20th minute the first drill instructor would come back to find that your area wasn't cleaned up and he just start tearing you up and they do it for one reason and one reason only the minute you say, oh, but sir, the other drill instructor told me that you failed the test and you're going to be in for some pain. The test is not to see how fast you can clean up your living area. It's to teach you that the proper answer is roger that drill sergeant and to immediately get back to work cleaning up your space. Subordination to the will and goals of the group is the point with the understanding that a disciplined group is more likely to survive and win, therefore, that subordination actually does circle back around and benefit the individuals involved. That's the idea. And of course, it breaks down when ego intrudes into the leadership structure. You know, if the second drill instructor who came along to distract me is doing things like that for personal reasons, you know, he's got a need to bully or control people or he just doesn't like me, then it would be legitimate for me to complain to the superior, the other drill instructor, and the military tries to institute systems for that, but it's really hard to do that without undermining the effective operation of the chain of command. And so in practice, leaders with bad motives can sometimes hide behind their authority and operate that way for a long time. You know, human nature is involved. And you see the same thing in communist societies, and you see the same thing in a small scale in these struggle, struggle sessions wherever you look. You know, the idea is supposed to be that the group will, at least within the party, in the Leninist formulation, will inevitably be superior to and wiser than an individual's judgment. And even if, in some specific instance, it isn't, allowing each person to choose when or when not to follow the group will would be like allowing soldiers to decide whether or not to charge up a hill. Now, even if the group gets carried away, the democratic principle embodied is more important than any given incident. And whatever the group is doing, even if the group is wrong, it speaks to an anti-democratic 
elitist mentality for someone to even be approaching the question in that manner. And the point of the struggle session was not so much to identify specific infractions so much as to hammer out through humiliation and psychological torture those counter-revolutionary tendencies in the personality. And once all those tendencies are hammered out, well, there, there won't be any need for struggle sessions. Back in the 60s and early 70s, communes and college campuses and dorms all over the Bay Area and, and the whole country and many places in the world were engaging in these struggle sessions on a daily basis. At places like the Esalen Institute on the California coast an hour or two south of the Bay, you know, people were paying good money to participate in seminars that were basically the same thing. The Temple's college students were a primary vector for this type of behavior and thinking to leak into the Temple. But at the same time, they were just following the adults' lead, even as the adults scrambled to keep up with the students. It was a vicious cycle that only one person was actually empowered to put in check, and that was Jim Jones, and the only time he pumped the brakes was when someone else might seem to be posturing as a more radical socialist than the master. As more Bay Area radicals came into the temple, they brought their experience and education along with their energy and their politics, and that was an asset to Jim Jones as long as he could know with certainty that they were under his thumb, but you know, his paranoia required constant reassurance that that was the case. The temple constructed this inverted status hierarchy that, you know, kind of took literally the Christian idea that the last shall be first. It was essentially what we mean today by the term intersectionality, but 20 years before the term itself was coined. Those who were the most marginalized, those who suffered the most, who ranked lowest in the status hierarchy of the fascist states of America, were the least affected by the corruptions of materialism and capitalism, racism, chauvinism, and all the rest, and so they were more pure and in fact, they were closest to God. Women ranked higher than men, and so they occupied, you know, 80-90% of the temple's highest positions. Black people ranked higher than white men or women, although there were few blacks in the temple hierarchy, and a, which is an apparent contradiction, but we'll get to that. Black women ranked higher than black men. Black senior citizen women ranked higher than young black women, and so forth. Even among the temple elite, which consisted mostly of white women, Jewish women who, who were among the, the elite had less to apologize for than the non-Jewish white women. There was this one incident where two of the white women on the church's planning commission got into an argument over some administrative issue, and the one who was Jewish ended the discussion by accusing the other of anti-Semitism, you know, of unconsciously dismissing her opinion because she was Jewish. These people are as left-wing and socially conscious a group as you can imagine. It is very unlikely that there were any anti-Semites in People's Temple leadership, but the one who was being accused did not have the moral standing to question the subjective experience of the accuser. Men were accused of misogyny by women to win arguments all the time, and they, and they hated it. A, a black man could sometimes shut down a white woman by accusing her of racism, although that would depend on the situation. No man had the right to deny a charge of misogyny lodged by a woman any more than any white person had the right to deny a charge of racism lodged by one of the African Americans. And so only Jim Jones, the fully realized socialist who carried the suffering of all the world inside him, had the power to absolve. 
if Jim wasn't present or if he let it go on, this inverted hierarchy prevailed over everything. One of the trump cards in this game was to call someone an elitist. Anyone could be accused of putting on airs and trying to be above the rest of the group. So depending on the situation, it was an accusation that could go around the usual moral hierarchy. A white man might accuse a black woman of acting like an elitist under the right circumstances and prevail. And what were the right circumstances? Partly was up to the group and to Jim, finally, as the head of the group. And over time, this system of status-seeking within the temple leadership evolved into a very sophisticated enforcement mechanism based kind of on moral blackmail. In a heated catharsis session at one of the nightly planning commission meetings, and before very long, all of the meetings were heated, a white woman might be called out by a black man for exhibiting unconscious racist attitudes, and she might respond in turn that, in fact, it was him who was exhibiting chauvinistic or elitist attitudes toward her. And for a moment, it might seem like it kind of go either way. And I've listened to the, I've listened to these things, and this happens all the time. It might go either way. And Jim, partly for deliberate reasons, but partly kind of reading the mood of the room, doesn't want to get too far on the side on the other side of that. You know, he might side with one or he might side with the other, and then that would be that. He might rule that the woman was trying to avoid taking responsibility for her racism by cynically accusing the man of misogyny. Or he might sway the crowd toward the view that the man's accusation against the woman was an example of the misogyny of which he'd been counter-accused. You know, sometimes the women would take the side of the woman and the men would take the side of the man and he would encourage the conflict for a while and let it go. And these meetings would go on all night. And it would take place most nights a week after a long day at work. I mean, these people would work all day and then they'd go into a planning commission meeting at, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night and do that until three, four in the morning. And then they'd get up and go to work at seven o'clock the next day. You know, Jim gets through them because he's hopped up on increasing doses of amphetamines and the people alternating between discussions about planning and policy, they're haranguing each other about their shortcomings as socialists and basically just trying to keep awake the whole time. Well, over time, more and more of this inner circle are resorting to speed, just like Jim, in order to deal with this grueling schedule. And so you would have this group of 50 to 100 ultra-dedicated radical activists packed into a room, running on two to four hours of sleep for weeks, hopped up on enough amphetamines to kill a horse, getting each other worked up about the conspiracies being plotted by the U.S. government and screaming at each other when the meeting devolved into a catharsis session, which eventually all of them did. I must be losing track of it. I thought I was doing better. I tried to hold my tongue, but it wasn't good enough. I don't see why you can't keep your hands down. I don't know you're saying anything. How come you can't keep your mouth shut and do your work? Huh? How come you can't keep your mouth shut and do your work and stay off of I maintain that, you know, somebody, somebody, and it could be some little puke, is just trying to play us out of pocket. And the reason they're doing, they're doing that because we are definitely a threat. But more, more than that, it's some little jive-ass punk that's not doing their job in, in one level or another, that's not doing their job, and they're getting shown up by us. And the only way I think, I maintain that the only way to back down a punk is to tell them what you're going to do. Don't wait for them to tell you. You tell them to back off or get the hell out of your way. All right. All right.
that reason the people got to talk to them like an animal? Tie them up? What kind of damn business is this? General man, I'm causing any more. Of course, I'm. I had to run out here. I had to stop people running out here to take things in their own hands. You don't know how close you came, but I know you don't know. Not a lot of you sitting there don't know how close you came. Well, you know, I just like to say. About that, is it? I just like to say about that comment I made. I don't know like making. I'm teaching. I just I wasn't really referring uh, to. I wasn't referring. I wasn't referring to the group that I felt that I was smarter than anyone else. I just, I just meant that I was referring to people of, that are familiar with arts and having some kind of intellectual background, but I, I really don't uh, consider myself as an intellectual. Mm -hmm. So I really, I just use that word, but I really was referring to to the group. I've been living here with Brother Bikeman and you won't be very well for a while. And I hope that you will learn as I have to exert my power with a sense of justice and will because you have stepped too far. Although this charge of elitism could be technically thrown at anyone, Jim used it very effectively against the educated white men in the temple. And he had guys with law degrees, history PhDs in the temple, and he clearly saw them as potential rivals for credibility and leadership. And he, I mean, he probably had nightmares about one of them sitting around with a group of followers after one of his lectures and telling them that actually Jim was mistaken about this point of Russian history or Marxist doctrine or whatever. Jim could not tolerate that. And the charge of elitism became one of his primary means of controlling it. Jeff Gwynn illustrates this dynamic a little bit. Quote, Jones was able to connect with the influx of young, well-educated white members who'd previously lived in comfortable circumstances. He was just as informed as they were. Because he voraciously read newspapers and magazines, Jones was conversant on a wide variety of topics. But mostly he challenged those who had been well-educated and financially well-off before joining the temple, especially when they seemed resentful of the demands placed on them. They'd been spoiled by the privileges they'd enjoyed at the expense of the working poor, Jones said. Now they thought they were too good for hard work. Did they really believe in socialism and the equality of all? Then prove it. Take on the toughest tasks and do them cheerfully and well. Usually they did, but the best educated among his followers posed an additional challenge for Jones. His sermons often misrepresented facts or ignored inconvenient ones, especially regarding the Soviet Union. Most temple members accepted what they heard. If Father said it, it must be true. But a few who knew their history, or at least kept up with current events, squirmed when Jones insisted that everyone in the temple should honor the memory of Stalin, 
whose ruthless purges cost countless innocent lives. In one San Francisco meeting, when Jones praised the Soviet government maintaining the wildlife in tribes of eth and ethnic groups in Siberia, Gary Lambrev couldn't help himself. He stood up and asked, Jim, what about the gulags and the millions of people murdered? Jones' face turned bright red. He shouted, you arrogant brat, you think you know everything, and ranted at Lambrev for several minutes, condemning him and any other self-important intellectuals who claimed to know everything. He was screaming so hard that saliva was spraying out of his mouth, Lambrev recalls. I was humiliated. When J Jones felt that his point was made, not just to Lambrev, but to anyone else who might ever consider correcting him in mid-sermon, he went on with the meeting. When it was finally over, Lambrev bolted, only to find Jones waiting for him in the hallway. Lambrev remembers the scene, quote, He reached out with his arm and pulled me in toward himself. He said, Gary, I am so, so sorry. I had to do what I did. You'll understand after I tell you why. My people are fundamentalists, or they were. They've been taught how not to think for themselves. They only think in black and white. If you chip away at my shining armor, they're going to think the devil was with me. I understood immediately that subtlety was not something that was appreciated by most of the people who were in the temple. And then Jim reminded Lambrev that he himself worked harder than anyone else in the temple. Gary, I don't have time to read every book and know every fact. I authorize you to come to me privately whenever I make a mistake in public and let me know about it. I want you to do that, but never in front of my people. They can't ever be allowed to think I'm wrong. Lambrev felt honored that Jones had taken him into his confidence and resolved not to challenge him in public again. That last quote was from Reiterman. This system worked. Closeness to Jim Jones was the primary marker of status in the temple. Being able to pull Jim aside after a sermon and have an earnest one-on-one -on -one discussion with him about a point of history or doctrine was an immense privilege for Lambrev. You know, it wasn't just a personal feeling for him or a, feel, you know, a feeling honored that Jim would listen to him. Other people would see him talking to Jim and going over a topic in a book you know, out of hearing of anyone else, and they would wonder what was being talked about and be envious and treat Gary Lambrev with more deference and respect because of it. Gwynn continues, quote, Praise from Jones was a drug in itself. Members often competed to see who could sleep less. If someone bragged, I worked so long last night, I only slept three hours. Someone else was likely to retort, I only slept two. Highly educated members begged to be assigned to the most menial tasks. High school dropouts who'd previously held menial dead-end jobs found themselves supervising the same kind of people who'd been their bosses. Everyone was worn out, and most, at some point, found themselves simultaneously exhilarated. Predictably, the atmosphere of mandatory humility fostered in many a simultaneous sense of moral superiority. The less they slept, the more they sacrificed material possessions in bourgeois pride, the more worthy they were. These temple members felt that they were exhibiting the proper socialist attitude, living the way everyone else should, and someday would, thanks to them. They were better than anyone else because they proved that everyone was equal. None had either the leisure time nor the inclination to consider the contradiction. End quote. As time went on, increasingly harsher tactics were used against members who proved more stubborn. Occasionally, a woman in the church would be a serious, dedicated member of the temple, but 
you know, kind of in the tradition of Marge Simpson dragging the family to church while Homer finds ways to check the football scores during the sermon. Her husband would be around and he'd attend and he'd hang around, but he was just less committed to the whole thing. Well, Jim did not like that. He saw this as a subversive element because, you know, the husband might undermine the faith of the wife. Uh, he might undermine the faith of the children while being immune to the whole moral shaming and, and other games that the church was playing to control people within because he wasn't really committed to it. If possible, Jim would attempt to drive a wedge between the husband and wife and get rid of the husband altogether. That happened a few times, but that wasn't always possible. And he had to be careful with that because... You, know, you push too hard, you might lose the whole family. There was this one family, the Bikemans, who had come from Indiana with the original group that was just like this. The husband was a former Marine, and he did not like Jim at all. His wife was a very dedicated member, though. So the husband, in small ways sometimes, sometimes more directly, he would make that contempt known in public. You know, he had to be a little careful, too, because Jim did have his hooks in the wife, and you know, already when she moved to Indiana, she told him, I'm going to California with the temple, whether you come with me or not. And so he came along. So one time they were at a temple potluck and a bunch of people around and somebody overheard the husband making a snarky comment about something Jim had said or done or something like that. And word gets back to Jim. And so he has people in the kitchen make a bunch of lemon meringue pie, which is this husband's favorite food. And he has his slice, the husband's slice, spiked with some kind of poison that makes him really sick, like right away, right in front of everybody. He falls down, throwing up, diarrhea. His son said he almost died. And of course, when the guy fell out, Jim announced that he'd been struck down due to his blasphemy and his lack of commitment. And in fact, it was only by Jim's mercy that he had survived it all. It could get pretty harsh. Husbands and wives would report on each other. Children were encouraged to report signs of disloyalty from their parents. And all for their own good, of course. You know, America is a dark land full of temptations and corruptions, and temple members had to look out for one another, help pull each other back from the brink, back from the abyss, onto the, onto the path if they started to go astray. There was this one couple, Joyce Shaw and Bob Houston. Joyce... Shaw had come into the temple without a lot of the more serious baggage that many of the other women showed up with. You know, she'd been divorced, but she had a good job working at the University of California in San Francisco. She had a good apartment. You know, just economically, she was self-sufficient. She had friends. But behind all of that was that common, vague dissatisfaction with her life. And so one thing leads to another, and she becomes a full-time member of People's Temple. Bob Houston, coming from a very different place. Bob was a dedicated ideologue, socialist ideologue, who was in the temple because it was a vehicle to help manifest socialism in the world, period. And he was a serious guy. He, he already had a wife and children and was working two jobs when he was working his way through college at UC Berkeley, where he was the student director of the Cal Marching Band. So he's a serious guy. They're both in the church later on, and the two find their way to one another. Uh, you don't need the whole story. It's not important. And so Bob is still married at the time, but him and his wife don't really get along anymore. And so he, he goes to Jim and the church council that's kind of set up to review these kind of things and asks for permission to split with his wife 
and go be with Joyce. His, his wife is fine with it, too. And so Jim gives him permission, but, but Jim does not like Bob Houston. Bob is a, is a very well-educated, you know, socialist, hardcore socialist ideologue, and he could be uncompromising and stubborn and assertive on points of doctrine or history. Sometimes he would argue with Jim in public. And so Jim would pick at him, pick at him, pick at him. A few weeks after he gave Joyce and Bob permission to hook up, Jim goes discreetly to the church council set up to review these things and has them withdraw the permission. And Bob's already moved out of his family home by this point, so now he has to move back into the family home. And he and his wife basically hate each other by this point. They sleep with a dresser between their two twin beds, and they go weeks at a time with hardly a word passing between them. His wife takes on another boyfriend, and Bob and Joyce continue to see each other. They continue their affair, but the demands of the temple are extreme, and the schedule's hard, and it was hard to make it work, but they did their best. I'm just giving you a little background. This is going somewhere. This is just two random people in the temple, but I, I think it's illustrative of kind of where things are going. And so Joyce had moved from San Francisco up to Redwood Valley to work full-time for the temple. After two years of that, she had had enough. She did not like it up there. She had come from rural Ohio, where she grew up, to live in San Francisco. She did not come to live in rural Northern California, and she hated it. The work and the schedule were excruciating. She and Bob, who had managed to get assigned to work on the church newspaper together, one time trying to get an issue out on deadline, they went five days straight without sleep. And Jim was watching everything. He saw almost everything. You got to understand, this was Jim's whole, it was his whole life, it was his whole job. He didn't have other concerns. Watching his people, managing the church, managing the personalities and, and, and the perceptions in the church. It was everything. It was his whole life. And he saw it all. And so one night, Joyce Shaw and Bob Houston are summoned before the planning commission and told that the decision had been made that the two of them should get married. And the church would often arrange marriages between members by this point in their history. Usually it would be between members who were not really romantically interested in one another, doing it for appearances sake, uh, you know, maybe say when two members were going to be assigned to oversee uh, foster children or, or adoptees in one of the temple's communal homes, you know, they would want the two to be technically married so that when the social workers came, it was kind of you know, a little, little bit easier to, to pass. All marriages between full-time members of the temple had to be approved by the church, by the way. You couldn't just get married. A marriage to an outsider was not a possibility. Unless the outsider was going to join the church and the council had to approve that too. Very rarely did the church authorize marriage between two white people, but Joyce and Bob, they were both white. They were going to be an exception, but both of them were hesitant to actually get married. By this point, they'd been together for a while and, you know, they'd had some difficulties Joyce, for her part, was hesitant to get married at all, to get into anything permanent, because her previous marriage had failed in kind of a messy way, and she wasn't sure about that. And Bob was kind of worried about the effect on his children of officially leaving his wife, you know, kind of permanently. And so Jim sweetens the pot by telling them that after they get married, they're both going to leave Redwood Valley and move back to San Francisco, where they could better serve the church by just getting conventional jobs and donating whatever they can back to the church. 
And so the idea of moving back to the city overwhelmed everything else, and the two of them did as they were told. And so they go to San Francisco, and they move into a terrible neighborhood, into a studio apartment in a section of town that the cops called Needle Alley. Joyce remembers they seemed to be the only white people for like a thousand miles, and every time they went outside, they got attention from neighbors and street walkers who looked at them like they were crazy for being there. They got jobs in town and lived as cheaply as possible, the cheapest food, everything they could, gave every penny that they could to the temple. Both of them were drawing low salaries, but the couple managed to give the church over $10,000 in the first year. I mean, this is the early 70s, so that's close to $60,000 today. They cut a deal with the slumlord who was managing the apartment that they lived in to sweep up the empty heroin vials and wine bottles from the apartment hallways in exchange for lowering their rent. Also, they could give more money to the church. These are dedicated people. Their wedding night was spent in their studio apartment. There was no honeymoon. So about six weeks after they were married, they get a call from the church, and they're informed that they're going to be taking in a teenage boy who's having problems up north in Ukiah. And by the way, Redwood Valley is a little area just north of Ukiah. You read books about Jonestown, People's Temple, and they'll kind of use Ukiah and Redwood Valley interchangeably, and I do that sometimes too. They're, they're not technically the same place. The temple headquarters was in Redwood Valley. Ukiah is the nearby town that most of the members lived in and, and their kids went to school in and so forth. So if I say Ukiah or Redwood Valley, I'm just talking about the headquarters collective in the area up in Northern California where the church first settled in Cali after coming over from Indiana. Anyway, so Joyce and Bob had not planned on taking on a teenage boy in their studio apartment, especially this early into their marriage, but they did as they were expected to do. And then about a month after that, they get another call. And they're informed that Bob's two daughters were going to be moving in with them as well because it had been discovered that his ex-wife was dating a guy who had previously been in the church but left, and so she was looked at now as maybe potentially disloyal or subversive, and they didn't want that rubbing off on the daughters, and so the church had decided that the kids, the two kids, were going to be removed from her home and sent to live with Bob and Joyce. And so they agreed to this as well. Now it's going to be necessary to find a little bit bigger house, and so they did that, and as soon as they did that, the floodgates opened. More children are sent to live with them, and then more adults, and very quickly their household becomes a full-blown commune. At one point, the house was packed with 24 individual people. There were so many kids running around that some of them would have to be hidden when the social workers would come in to check. But, again, Bob and Joyce were absolutely committed, and so they made the best of it. They cared for the children, managed the household activities and chores, and, and stretched the budget very well, all while they could... You know, all, all while they were still donating everything possible back to the church. Bob played daddy and Joyce played mommy to the kids, many of them, you know, who had never had anything like that and had, ne had nowhere else to go. And some of the kids were children of temple members who were too busy to care for them themselves. You know, the temple would move kids around like this. They really embraced the kind of it takes a village to raise a child mentality to heart. Bob did handyman work around the house when he wasn't working one of his two jobs. Joyce mended the kids' clothes and stretched out the food budget of 60 cents per day into pretty good, nutritious meals for everybody. They tutored the kids for their classes. Bob taught them musical instruments. They kept in touch with the kids' teachers. They, you know, they took the kids on trips down to Chinatown and the beach, little things like that. But 
you know, neither of which think many of many of the kids that never even they lived in San Francisco and they, many of them had never been to the beach, never been to Chinatown. So this is a big deal. These kids were enjoying good lives because of the dedication of Joyce Shaw and Bob Houston. Bob was extremely careful not to treat his own daughters any differently than any of the other kids, even to acknowledge the difference. Joyce thought he was too careful about that. And through it all, with all the kids in the house, everything, there's five adults living in the house, and in one year they managed to send over $19,000 to the church, despite making only $45,000 between them all. And it wasn't all beach trips and PTA meetings, though, as you can imagine. This was a stressful situation a lot of the time. Joyce was primarily interested in just trying to give these kids a good life, but Bob's ideology just dominated everything in his approach. He believed in complete democracy and total equality, which to him meant that the children should have an equal voice in all decisions involving the household. Joyce was not a crazy person, and so she let him know that she disagreed with that approach, but Bob tried to keep doing it anyway. And naturally, when kids make their own rules, they don't always want to do things like clean their rooms. But when Joyce tried to impose order, Bob would object to it on ideological and personal grounds. And they try to make it into a big argument about socialism and direct democracy. And sometimes they would get into fights. Now, the other adults supported Joyce, but Bob would not listen to any of them. And so Joyce wrote a, wrote a report. She reported her husband, Bob, to the temple leadership. And one day, the two, one night, the two were called to the carpet at a temple meeting. After hearing all sides of the council and everybody kind of arguing about it, uh, the council, at Jim's direction, or with his approval at least, directed that Bob was going to be demoted and Joyce would now have the final say in all decisions regarding the commune. Bob was angry and he was humiliated, um, but he did as he was told. But by now, Jim had developed a thing for Bob Houston. Tim Reiterman writes, quote, The combination of his stubborn personality, vocabulary, education, and perhaps his father's occupation as a newsman made him a suspect member, a frequent target of Jones' tirades against elitists. It did not matter that he worked two paying jobs, that he served as a church bus driver on weekend trips to Los Angeles, that he kept himself running on coffee, or that he knew his marks. He had the disturbing habit of taking Jones seriously when father invited questions. Bob asked them, sometimes the tough or esoteric ones about socialist theory. What to Bob was simply an exercise of intellectual curiosity seemed to others a pretentious flaunting of multisyllabic words and complicated concepts. Worse, he was clearly better educated than Jones. At meetings, Jones handed carte blanche to anyone who wanted to antagonize or harass Bob Houston, who was ridiculed as an insensitive intellectual and made fun of for his priggishness. Tearing Bob Houston apart became a sadistic sport condoned by Jones. He was mocked, even by his own children, even at home. His stubborn, honest defenses only encouraged more of it. He was derided even for dozing off at meetings. Jones labeled him a narcoleptic, victim of a disease marked by sudden and deep sleep. Then he attacked him as a traitor and class enemy. Though some members were disturbed, none came to Bob's defense. No one wished to share the animosity. Besides... It seemed sometimes that Houston brought it upon himself, stubbornly doing the same things over and over. Stoically, he tolerated the punishments that grew more extreme as time went on. Once, 
After his troubles in the commune became public, Bob's punishment was to sit in the front row at services, like a troublesome child, and show unqualified enthusiasm for Jones by waving his arms in the air, swaying and shouting praises like the Pentecostal blacks. But the discipline that hurt Bob most resulted from a memo from his own wife Joyce complaining about his obstructionism in the commune. At a Sunday night meeting, with Bob still wearing a business suit after a long day, Jones decreed that he should start work immediately on a building restoration, without even going home to change clothes. Houston was taken aback, but agreed to Jones' malice-like re-education. For over three months, Bob was absent from the commune and saw little of his wife and daughters. The punishment was expedient. At the time, there was a railroad layoff affecting his job, and Houston would not have a good income anyway. This way, he could collect unemployment benefits and do church work. For his part, Houston tried to make the best of a painful situation by learning about building trades. Like so much with the church, the physical discipline began in a small way and only gradually reached extremes. It had started with a few light spankings for children. Then, a paddle-like, one-inch-by-four-inch board of education was introduced. The paddlings became more severe and were often administered by a rotund black woman named Ruby Carroll, who was chosen for her physical strength. Like a master of ceremonies, Jones supervised, but the audience participated, particularly when the disciplined person was deserving or disliked. The swats varied in number and intensity. Some were spanked almost half-heartedly or in fairly good humor. Other spankings qualified as beatings. In one of the most extreme, teenage Linda Myrtle was hit 75 times for becoming too affectionate with an alleged lesbian. The normal practice was for church notary publics to obtain signed permission slips from parents and guardians before the public floggings. Jones, for the most part, sat back and watched silently. At times, he seemed pained. At times, he laughed at some humorous aspect of the punishment, a joke that the spectators either shared or were expected to share. Other times, he would command the hitter to use more force or to increase the number of strokes. He might show compassion, calling off a particularly painful beating or reducing the number of hits. Willie Malone shoved Carol Kearns in the face yesterday, abusive and threatening, called her and Karen Lindo's name, loud and mouthy in an apartment this morning, taken to coordinator's office both times, hostile to Penny, and mother, and mother, and mother, Did you give no shit to mother? Okay. Get away, get away. Bag him off, bag him off, bag him off. Yes, son. Um, Dad, yesterday we was in the pavilion sitting over here. The only people to sign these proper forms starting now. He was saying yesterday that he can control all the children better than these bitches around here. Well, he had his chance. He had his chance, and he fucking it up bad. Fat bitch in the um, dining area over there. Called her a black bitch. A fat bitch. Fat bitch. I also heard that he was talking to someone else. To Vincent. Vincent said he couldn't win with 800 people. And you said... Willie replied that the way to do it is take one person at a time. So 
You punks. You goddamn punks want to just tear up our organization. Who are you going to take one at a time? Back to Reiterman, quote, Boxing matches were soon inaugurated for children, almost as entertainment. Laughter and lightheartedness predominated as an errant child was pitted against a stronger opponent who was supposed to win. Some were as young as five. If the wrong child won, tougher opponents would be called into the arena until the child was taught a lesson. The next step was introducing adults to the matches. The brutality became severe as full-grown people began throwing punches seriously. A person stupid enough to fight too hard would go toe-to-toe with bigger and better opponents until vanquished. But if he did not fight at all, he was ridiculed and hit anyway. Every punch carried the message, one cannot fight the collective will. Bob Houston was sent into at least two gladiatorial events. In one boxing match, he suffered a bloody nose and a shiner and was greatly embarrassed in front of his family. He tried to fight back with little luck. As he was pummeled, Jones sat behind the podium on his stool and chortled. Jones justified his psychodrama by saying that society was full of rough conditions, that people needed to be rugged and capable of self-defense. Yet it was really an extension of the catharsis sessions, with physical pain added to the psychological. Though corporal, through corporal punishment, internal order was strengthened, justice was meted out, and indoctrination was set. No one, not even the white elite, was exempted technically from the punishments. Joyce Shaw received five swats with the Board of Education for shoving her stepdaughter, Judy Houston. Even Jones, who claimed that his own father had spanked him as a child, took some swats to demonstrate that his followers had caused him pain by their rules violations. His son Stephen was paddled once. Even little John Victor, Jim or Tim Stone's son by grace, took a spanking in front of the group, standing with tears in his eyes, raising a clenched fist at the end, and saying, Thank you, Father. End quote. Now, the temple's policy of accepting anyone from any walk of life was unfailing. Unfailing. They took in violent felons straight out of prison. They took in the insane and mentally handicapped right off the street. They took in sexual predators as long as they promised to reform. Anybody. And the temple's rule regarding their own was that under no circumstances was a member ever to be turned over to the American police. Under no circumstances. They approached that question the way that the American military would approach it in enemy territory. You know, an American soldier might commit any horrible crime, say in Afghanistan or Iraq, rape, mass murder, whatever it is. And we might give that soldier the death penalty, but what we will not do, period, is turn him over to ISIS or the Taliban so that they can deal with him. It's just not going to happen. That's how the temple came to understand its relationship to the fascist government of the United States. From Jeff Gwynn, quote, Peter Wotherspoon was a pedophile, accepted into the temple despite his openly admitted failing. He was informed from the beginning that the slightest further illicit act with a child would be unacceptable, but he couldn't resist. A 10-year-old temple boy reported that Wetherspoon had engaged him in a sex act, and Wetherspoon was brought before the planning commission to answer for it. 
Weatherspoon was taken to a back room in order to strip and lay his genitals flat on a table. Then Jack Beam, wielding a length of rubber hose, pounded on Weatherspoon's penis and scrotum until they were swollen several times over. Weatherspoon had to be catheterized and lay in bed for days afterward, unable to move. But he was allowed to remain in the temple, with the understanding that any additional transgression would result in something much worse. End quote. Later, a young man in his late teens attempted to force himself on a 12 year old girl. Got a lot of nerve, hey, asshole. Todd. Asshole. Take his tooth out. Hold it, hold it. Take his tooth out. Hold it. Take his tooth out. Take his tooth out. Oh, Lord. Actually, you want to know the fact of it? Make this little girl look like a whore. That's, that's, that's not the case. That's how the security got into it. She was screaming to get away from you. Oh, yes, she was. That's how, that's how he had, that's how Billy's found you. Her screaming to get away from you. You're a grown man and she a child. I like to say dads give you plenty of chances and you're fucked up already. When he was supposed to go, I, I trust him, put him out. He come home and a little 12 year old girl. Prick. Hold it now, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, Stephen. Now you get out of the goddamn stuff, Stephen. You get out of it. Stephen, you get out of it. Stephen. Don't you take your pen host hostilities like that, Stephen. Get out of there. They ain't pen hostilities. I hate to see a fucking my goddamn age on a little fucking girl like that. Ain't no fucking pen hostilities to it, you cool ass motherfucker. Tough. So tough. I agree with you, but get out of it. You can't be in it. You're risking organizational problems. Get in, Get out of there. Night, let go! You guys control yourselves. Everybody else knows what to be. Everybody else knows what to be. You know, technically, technically, you can be hung. You're an adult and she's a child. Technically, you can be hung in this country. Oh. Why do you let her go? Hurry up! You let her do it quick. Yeah, 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 Why didn't you let her go? I don't know, Dad. It was stupid. It's just something I wanted to do, and it was stupid. Held a person against their will, a twelve-year-old child, screaming that causes the whole community to be alerted. We have never had that kind of forceful rape. That's right. Never. Dad, when I was trying to get loose from him, I told him I told him it was hurt me. I told him to let me go. He just kept saying, "Shh, just hold on to me and stuff, and it won't hurt and stuff." And I kept on telling him to let me go, and he wouldn't. And then Bill we know, we know you want to be free. We know. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just that I'm carrying on the way I used to. Um, it's just stupid. I'm just, uh... Stupid? You're a rapist. You're a child molester. You better keep away from the kid down back. Stupid ass motherfucker! That's right. Beat your goddamn ass! Don't hit him, don't hit him. Hold it, hold it, hold it! 
Why didn't you, you, you can avoid this shit you'd have confessed last night? That's right there. Let her get it out. Let her get it out. She's the one that was raped. Let her get it out. Let her get it out. Hit him in the balls. Hit him in the balls. Hit him. Back off, back off, back off from her. Back off from him. Back off from him. Let him back. No, no, I don't mean her. Everybody get away. Let him let him loose. Let her loose. So people can see. Everybody down. Everybody down. Everybody down. Let her get out. Some people can see. There have been others raped out there. There have been others raped out there. Get down, you fuckers. Get down. Hold on to your precious balls that you put into little babies. All you better look to decide you want to rape a child. You better look real well. We'll, we'll gladly stand up to face anybody about this. Now, Jim had another trump card that he would pull more and more often as time went on. Whenever he talked himself into a corner or felt that he'd misread the room and just needed a, needed a way out, an escape hatch, he would pretend to faint or fake a heart attack or a seizure or some other kind of spasm. And then he would blame it on the stress or pain that one member or another had caused him. And Jim did have actual feigning spells and other attacks going back at least to the late 50s. But as time went on, it became more and more of a tactic that he would use. And once he did that, it didn't matter what was going on before. All discussion was ended and you know the group just attended to their fallen leader. Anything that was going on before... All the hostility now was directed toward the person or the people who were said to have caused him this grief. He did this so much over time, and he had to come up with so many explanations for the incidents that his alleged chronic health problems just piled up over time. I don't even know how many heart attacks he claims to have had, but it was a lot. Sometimes it was chronic stomach issues. At various points, he claimed he had cancer, epilepsy of, of a sort, extreme migraines, which sometimes were real. He did seem to have had those anemia, protein deficiency, as always with Jim, it's hard to tell where the line between fantasy and reality is drawn. He was no doubt a serious hypochondriac who believed that he was suffering from all sorts of illnesses and disorders, which he rationalized to his people, despite his healing powers as either resulting from him taking in the diseases of his healed followers, or maybe he would say that you know, he only had so much energy to heal, it took a lot out of him, and he just wouldn't think about wasting any of it on himself when the people needed him so much. But he was also a cynical operator at times, and we know from many people who were very close to him that he was often just faking it for effect. But again, even then, when he was faking it, Jim's motives are hard to untangle sometimes. Sometimes he seems to have done it to end a discussion or to redirect hostility in a meeting, 
Other times he maybe was just overwhelmed and needed a rest, but he couldn't admit that to himself and certainly couldn't admit that to his people. You know, he's the living God, he's the Superman. And so instead he fakes a heart attack and takes a few days off. And that has the double bonus of sympathy from everybody, gives him a few days off. And then he can, you know, claim that he'd miraculously healed himself after only a few days of bed rest. Other times we know he had fainting spells and suffered from what sound a lot like panic attacks, which is not surprising, given his paranoia and how in over his head he often was dealing with the demands of the organization. There's a quote from Jim's natural son, Stephen, something that he said long after the tragedy, which stuck with me. And I think it's actually very important for understanding how Jim was often approaching these situations. Um, again, I've, I've mentioned this a few times, the biographers that you'll read tend to always ascribe a Dr. Evil level of planning and cynical sophistication to Jim. He's thinking uh, 500 moves ahead and planning, you know, years ahead of time, how he's going to drag people to their eventual fate. But Stephen, Stephen Jones, who was as close to him as anyone, he saw an off guard version of his father that few other people ever did. And in my opinion, is exceptionally honest in his memories and assessments of the situation, including his own role in it all, which was often malign. Um, you know what? Actually, this isn't really the place for it in the narrative, and I'll probably segue back a bit abruptly, but I think I'm just going to read you some of Stephen's remarks at length because there's not going to be a better time to do it either. So this is from a really useful little book called Stories from Jonestown by Leigh Fondowski, mostly um, comprised of interviews. It's a book I didn't have a lot of hope for when I first picked it up, actually. There, there are a lot of terrible, simple-minded, um, exploitative books about Jonestown out there. Uh, but this book ended up being something really special. Uh, the, so the author of the book is meeting with Stephen. And Stephen has showed up ready with a box full of old pictures and photo albums from People's Temple in Jonestown, as well as more candid shots of his family. And so bear with me a little bit, because Stephen Jones is someone to pay attention to. And I, I really hope that someday he writes a book about this situation. Um, I can imagine that that might seem difficult or distasteful for him, but I, I think he's probably got a perspective that, that the history of the incident could really benefit from. So anyway, this is Stephen. Quote, I had a very loving mother and a loving father. Dad wasn't around much, and his life was pretty full up with his life, you know, with him. And in many respects, so was mom's life, filled up with him. He takes a breath. My dad was a raging addict. And I don't just mean chemicals. I mean, he was an addict personality. He was into power, sex, food, drugs, whatever he needed to fill that hole he was using. But most of all, he was addicted to adulation. And mom, well, mom was trying to manage and fix that. She loved him, and she was hooked on him. To use a modern-day term, she was codependent. Stephen opens the folder on the table. It's filled with snapshots of Jim Jones. Out of the thousands of photos of his father, Stephen has chosen about 20 candidates. The other side of Jim Jones. The pictures look and smell like the past. Old borders, faded colors, sticky residue on the surface. He spreads them out on the table in front of us. 
His gaze alternates between the snapshots and us. He picks up the first one, a picture of his father hugging an elderly African-American woman. This isn't even one of the better ones, he admits. But imagine what that hug meant to black people coming into the temple. My dad was always ready to hug and plant a kiss on an elderly black woman. He empathized with them, with their pain. I remember a time, sitting in a meeting, and this woman was literally screaming in pain over the miscarriages that she had that she had, had working in the fields as a sharecropper in Mississippi. She was recounting miscarriage after miscarriage, and Dad kept encouraging her, go on, let it out, let it out. Her blood-curdling screams filled the whole room. Dad was sitting up on, a sta- up on stage, tears streaming down his face, and he said, how can we live in a society that could do this to you? People were nodding along and crying. Stephen picks up another photo. He loved animals, he laughs. Then another. This one really captures his warmth, his heart. And a third. Jim Jones relaxed and smiling at the podium. This really captures the playfulness. Stephen points to something outside of the camera's frame. He's ribbing somebody over there on the side. As he flips through the stack, he comes across one of his father wearing aviator sunglasses the iconic image of Jim Jones most people remember. He shakes his head. Those sunglasses, I'll tell you, he remarked and quickly moves on. It's nice to see pictures of him without those sunglasses. He turns over a few more shots and then confides, My father was a pretty sick man. Very sick at the end. Pretty sick pretty early on. But he also had a real beauty about him, for lack of a better way of putting it. I've never used that word in relationship to him, but I think it probably says it best. So even when he was pulling the wool over on people, he was tapping into something that was real. He looks down at the photos again as if searching for proof of what he's about to say. He could light you up. He could light me up. I could be sitting there hating his guts and he could light me up. He looks down at the photos again as if searching for proof of what he's about to say. He could light you up. He could light me up. I could be sitting there hating his guts, and he could light me up. My father could preach up a storm, and what he was talking about was integration, social change. Sometimes he would even hint at revolution. You know, We're all brothers. We shall overcome. Stephen's voice rises, echoing his father's. We've got to turn the tables. We've got to balance things out. We've got to get it right. You've never run into a live wire in your life like I am. Never. Which is Rachel? Rachel? Yes. Hmm? Yes. Something uh, means something to you. You're from Phoenix. Yes, that's right. You've been told you have a tumor on your brain. Yes, my God. God. Hands class. The brain, it's, what has it done? Cause a deterioration in your muscles? Oh, yes, yes. Your legs and you can't walk. So it's progressively getting worse. Yes. Just as I know that there's a white linen tablecloth in your third drawer of your 
chest in Phoenix and I've never met you in my life as far as I know. I've never met you, have I? Correct. All right. Take your hands and clasp and believe. Believe. In a matter of a few minutes, you've got a bad headache. Yes, I do. And you can't walk. Right. Well, let's start with the headache. I say that I can dissolve that cancer. I say that you can walk. The pain's gone now, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, then stand on your feet. Stand on your feet. Stand on your feet. Get on up. Get on up. Get on. Quickly. Now stand up. It's done if you believe. She's coming up. She's up. She's up. She's now on her feet. She's standing erect. She's standing completely erect. Turn it up. Now back to Stephen. And then along with that, the congregation's mostly black. And we're singing spirituals. The place is booming, stomping, rocking, vibrating when we're singing. But oh, the word of God. The word of God that said that I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. That word of God reached out here this morning and reached out last night, growth after growth. Reached out to a woman for 12 and a half years, crippled. She come down the aisle. Couldn't hardly move. Come, couldn't get out of her seat alone. But the Spirit got her that high. And then somebody interfered. But I said, keep coming, sister, because I command you to keep coming. And before she finished, you all saw her. She was running. She was running. Twelve and a half years. Twelve and a half years she hadn't been able to walk. Twelve and a half years after a terrible automobile accident. Twelve and a half years that her hip had been crushed and they couldn't even set it back. A woman in her advanced seventies. But she ran like a new woman. And ten people come out of wheelchairs. Just like a snap of the finger they kept walking out of their wheelchair. What you talking about? This is that. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that. This is that, my child. This is that. I come to show you that God's no longer invisible, but He's real. I said He's real. He would have been dormant. He would have been dormant if I had not come to some of you this morning. That man would have had to lay in that chair that I saw him. Don't know he is a stranger to me. He'd had to lay in that chair and die when that cancer caused him to hemorrhage. He'd had to die. But God would have been dormant to him. But I came on the wings of the morning in Los Angeles. In the name of Jesus, I came in the name of Jesus. I lifted up the name of Jesus. I glorified the name of Jesus. Oh, yes. Some of you know the Word is made flesh. I said some of you know what I'm talking about. And the more you recognize of God, the more God will be reproduced in you. For I have come. Not as 30%, not as 60-fold, but I have come as a hundred-fold. I have come in the dispensation of the fullness of time. I have come as the essence of truth, and I have presented my body as my reasonable sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. And now it's a hundred-fold, it's a hundred-fold, 100%. God Almighty God. He's the guy up on the stage. He's the white guy up on the stage, and he is the man. 
He would come down off that stage and reach his hand out and his arms would just hug and kiss elderly women and pick children up in his arms. That's one of those times that he definitely tapped into something that was real. He was a politician kissing babies, Stephen concedes. But I know my dad, and he loved bridging that gap. He loved reaching out to somebody and saying, you know what? You're okay by me. You have a home here. That meant something to him. I know it did. He pauses again. You don't know me, he says directly. So you don't know my relationship with my father. I have no desire to paint a good picture of my dad. It's just been fairly recently in my life that I've come to forgive him. And no one hated him more when he was alive. No one. Nor after he died, but I've been outside people's temple now as long as I was inside, and I'm looking for a rounded view. An honest view. A balanced view. Broad enough to, to tell me who my father was and how he really did sometimes show up for people. A lot of people were harmed, he continues, were taken advantage of, were fooled, were abused in many ways, even murdered by the definition of the word. But I believe we all had some responsibility in varying degrees. I refuse to believe that everyone was wholesale bamboozled by this one evil man, and I include myself in that. By the, by the way, by the time everything went down at the end, uh, Stephen was a tall, well-built 18-year-old. Uh, you know, so young man, as the son of the king, he was the elite of the elite in the temple, and many surviving members do not remember him well at all, or at least they didn't. They may have been reconciled by now. He was a spoiled bully at times, something he acknowledges and regrets. You know, but I say you try growing up as Jim Jones' son in an environment like this and see how you turn out. Um, his father and mother died at Jonestown, along with not only all the people, but the whole system of life, the whole world, the only world he had ever known. Anyway, back to the book. Stephen picks up each snapshot again, carefully, one by one, studying them as if they were as new to him as they were to us. I went through thousands of pictures of my father, and I picked out these because they're as close to candid as, you, as you'll ever find a photo of him. He always had a camera going. He had a camera radar, you know. Yeah, but these are the images you don't see anywhere of a man, a handsome man with a charming smile, a playfulness about him. But towards the end, which is mostly what you see of my dad, his heart was long gone. My dad was a worn-out man. Mostly he was worn out by the constant vigil he kept over his own delusion. But here, Stephen gestures to the photos, Dad had a great sense of humor, which turned sort of dark and sinister toward the end, but he really had a great eye and he loved to laugh. He genuinely loved people. He had people hooked. People either were hooked on him or hooked by him. And most of what you see, you know, out in the world is just the craziness, the sunglasses, and the loud darkness about him. Why would anybody follow that guy? Why would anybody sign up for that for a second? His eyes returned to the photos on the table. I've kept these pictures. For all these years, all I could remember of my dad was what I hated. And that's a sick place to be. Another pause. I want to tell you his story. His eyes finally lighten. I remember my father taking me outside and pointing up to the sky. And he would pick a star or a planet and he would say that that was the planet that he and I were from. He stops to laugh at the memory. 
And I remember going as a kid, I don't think so, but also thinking, wow, cool, you know, and wanting enough to believe that, to believe it. Okay, there's a really strong voice right here saying, there's no goddamn way me and my dad are the only people or the only whatever from that planet. But there was an even stronger voice that said, yeah, I like the way that sounds. And that, I like the way that sounds, had no problem drowning out the voice that said, uh-uh, no way. Now I'm going to skip ahead a bit now. And the last sentence from Stephen Jones here is the one that made me think of this passage and, and took me on this tangent. This is the book again. I say I've forgiven myself for a lot of the things that I haven't forgiven myself for. I feel like I failed a lot of people and I hurt a lot of people. And I feel anger. And I don't want to feel angry, but I get so angry when I hear people talk about, yes, but we were wonderful. And I realize that they're just wanting to balance out the images of the crazy cultists piled up in the jungle. But that's just not what I want to do. I didn't experience the temple as a healthy place, he explains. I was just talking to my partner about it. I have anxieties now. Where does that come from? I lived in terror for the first 19 years of my life. We faced annihilation on a daily basis, but my father would always swoop in and rescue us, you know? It's all okay. And then you're eternally grateful to him, but you forget. Wait a minute. You're the one who created the terror. You're the one who created the danger, and now you're... <sighs> but we're grateful to you for saving us from it. This happens all the time in abusive families. Eternally grateful, he repeats. Never saw dad. No love, no appreciation, no anything. And then he would come in and just love you up. And it could all melt away because my dad's here. I think he did that to a lot of people. And here's the part that stuck with me. And I don't think he was just scheming to control people. He was a kid in a candy store. And we were his candy. End quote. I dwell on that until it makes sense, because it provides a lot of ins insight into what drove Jim Jones. He could be very deliberate and manipulative, very cynical, cruel, and sadistic later on. But it would be wrong to imagine him as operating from early on according to some grand plan, you know, the way so many of the biographers try to portray it. There's just no evidence for it, and there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. He was a man captive to his impulses, you know, a swirling mess of conflicting and competing fears and urges. In any given moment, this one might control him, and the next moment, that one might take over. As time went on, as his drug abuse became more extreme, and he spent so much time, many years, from his early adulthood until his last day in the jungle around people who not only would never check those impulses or give him any reason to pause or reflect on them before acting out, but who played an active role in amplifying them and in encouraging the worst and most dangerous aspects of his personality, you know, from neuroses on to pathology all the way down to derangement. And if you don't get that part, and try to frame every decision Jim Jones makes in terms of this grand plot to lead people toward the end that eventually comes, you just can't make sense of him as his actions become more erratic as time goes on. He gets into these cycles of self-reinforcing destructiveness where his hubris or his need to be at the center of attention leads him to make mistakes. Those mistakes backfire and cause him problems, which inflames his paranoia. And that leads him to take new hubristic actions to try to shore up his confidence 
which backfire again and so on and so on all along the way, acquiring a longer list of worries and enemies, people with grievances against him. Perfect example occurred during his 1971 trip to Indianapolis, the one where the temple found and brought back Deanna Wilkinson, the lead singer of the temple band that I closed the last episode with. Now a rational version of Jim Jones, right? Not the amphetamine chomping pathological narcissist version would probably avoid his hometown like it was the plague. And he's got a bunch of people now believing that he's the literal incarnation of the socialist God in human form. The last thing he should be thinking of doing is bringing those people back to the place where everyone just knows him as, oh, that's Jim. But he wanted to be the big hometown hero. And that's what he thought was going to happen, because when everything goes your way every moment of every day, you start to think that that's just how the whole world works. And so he brings hundreds of his people back to Indianapolis, where they had planned to put on a big revival show. And rather than just give a good sermon and accept the applause and go home the hero, instead he decides to put on a big, extravagant display of faith healing. It was just going to blow everyone away and show all those people who doubted him back home how wrong they were. Now, Jim's healing displays, they got more and more creative and extreme over the years, especially as he got people who could help him and, and build them up. They had professional makeup artists in the temple and the planning commission, and sometimes they would dress people up, basically like movie-quality characters, to look like an old man or an old woman in a wheelchair who was supposed to be crippled. And at a word from Jim Jones, they'd be dancing up and down the aisles, and everyone would buy it. People who knew the person wouldn't even recognize him. It was that good for his displays of clairvoyance, rather than just relying on intuition or plants or spies in the audience who would pass notes up to him, the old tricks of the revival circuit. He would have squads of trusted members who would go through the garbage or even break into the homes of people visiting the church that he wanted to recruit to get information about them that he could magically reveal during the sermon. And think about it. I mean, if you're a random person showing up to a people's temple service, and again, remember that by showing up to a people's temple service, you're probably already someone who has responded to a flyer or an invitation to go see a faith healer. So it's not like you're Richard Dawkins or Michael Shermer showing up to this place. And all of a sudden, this preacher, who shouldn't know you from Adam or Eve, calls you out by name in the crowd and tells you that he has been given to know that you have some specific medical ailment. And it's true. And that you've fallen behind on your electric bill. And that's true, too. And that People's Temple has, even as we speak, this very morning as you sat in the pews, has paid that bill. And the electric company wouldn't be bothering you anymore. You know, your mind might not automatically jump to thinking that he had had people break into your house to go through your medicine cabinet and trash for information this morning as soon as you left for church. We might be more likely to think that today. But that's partly because today we know the story of Jim Jones. And people were just flabbergasted. And it's not hard to see why, especially when you remember who a lot of these people were. You know, a disproportionate number of temple congregants were older black people who had come from the Jim Crow South, who had, you know, plenty of common sense, but very little standard education, many of whom were very religious anyway, especially the older ladies. And Jim knew his audience. He usually knew what he could get away with, what he could pull off. You go through the whole history of black Christianity and Negro spiritualism in America, and of course, you know, all the elements of Christianity are there. 
all the stuff about forgiveness of sins and doing to your neighbor and all that. But the running theme is on deliverance. Moses leading his people out of Egyptian slavery, you know, Jesus as comforter and liberator, the songs and prayers for the day when God and in his infinite mercy is finally going to lift your burden and not the burden of guilt or ennui that you find so many middle-class churches focusing on, but your real actual burden of living under oppressive social, economic, and political circumstances. So your whole life, you've been kind of prepped for this. And then you find yourself in this church, and not only does it have all the elements you remember from the best Sundays, you know, of the rockin' southern black church from when you were a kid, there are people of all races there joined in something that can't be faked. You see Jim calling out other members, healing them on the spot, fixing their problems, and maybe you doubt it. But you look around and you see educated white people, Middle class, educated black people, not just old ladies like yourself, you know, who had to quit school in third grade to help share crop. And they're nodding and cheering and believing it and telling you how just last week they had been healed. And it's a miracle. And then you get called out. And somehow he knows. He knows everything. He knew about your stomach problem and that you couldn't pay your electric bill. And sure enough, when you check the electric bill, it's been paid. Just as Jim Jones promised from the pulpit... Uh, when you went to the doctor to see about your stomach, as he told you to do, the doctor refused payment because you had been sent from the good people at the temple. Now, maybe you think, ah, okay, this dude must have broken into my house to go through my trash and my medicine cabinet. Maybe. But why would he do that? What did you bring to the table? Why, why would they want to recruit you at all? Why go through all that trouble over you, a poor old black lady that nobody ever cared about? that people didn't go out of their way to invite to lunch, let alone go through this whole big improbable criminal operation just to recruit you into their church. And it's not like everyone was taken in by it. Some people weren't, and they came and went, but some stayed. And if one out of five stays and 5,000 people pass through the church, then you got got 1,000 church members who really, really believe. The chief responsibility of the staff and the planning commission was to facilitate these healings. And these members were dedicated socialists who accepted the maxim that noble ends justified any means. And so rather than being put off by the revelation that the healings they'd previously believed in had been fake, they actually felt honored to have been kind of led into the inner sanctum of trust, to be among the elite who stage managed the show and kind of you know, created this, created this show that was designed to draw in people for their own salvation. You know, what was important was to get people into the temple where they could be cared for and loved. If they had been brainwashed by society and false religion so that they required a magic show in order to believe it, that was unfortunate. And maybe over time we can kind of work them out of that. But the important thing was to help them. And this is the way to do it. Then this is the way to do it. They were serious about this. Sometimes planning commission members would draw their own blood into plastic pouches and it would be stored up the sleeves of Jim's robes as he preached. And at the perfect moment, he would be overtaken with the spirit and the pouches of blood up his sleeves would be attached to small catheters, which had been run by a needle under the skin of his forearm, poking out just slightly at his wrist or at the base of his palm. And he would hold out his hands to the audience so they could see him bleed the stigmata sharing the wounds of Christ right there on stage. You know, they were dedicated to the craft. One of the go-to healings would have Jim calling someone out from the crowd to announce that some ailment or another was the result of an undiscovered cancer in their body. 
and that now, through his power and their faith, it was going to be removed. And so they would be led into a restroom by members who were in on the show, and they were trained for this event. They would practice it. And the person would have to close their eyes in the restroom and lean their head back and open their mouths and imagine the cancer being purged from their body, something like that, and with a very well-practiced sleight of hand, a chunk of rotten chicken guts would be dropped into the back of their throat, and they'd gag it up into a napkin held by the accomplice, who would proudly trot the bloody mess into the auditorium as the crowd just cheered wildly for the faith of the healed. It, thank God you were so faithful that you've, you've healed yourself. He pulled this one on the trip back to Indianapolis in front of big crowds during daytime and evening services, but... He wanted everything to go off perfectly and with maximum effect, and so he decided to only use temple plants in the audience for the healings. No local people. And this was kind of an uncharacteristic mistake, especially uncharacteristic given Jim's paranoia. He's, he only had so many trained temple members to work with, and so he ended up using some of the same people to be healed during both sessions. A reporter from the Indianapolis Star, a diligent reporter, uh, was at the first session and decided to stick around for the second, and he saw the repeat healings using the same people, and he wrote the story up that way. Given Jim's history in the city, remember, not only as a former pastor and, and civil rights activist, but he was the first director of Indianapolis's Human Rights Commission, and so the story got a lot of attention. The headline said, Church filled to see cures, in scare quotes, by self-proclaimed prophet of God, also in scare quotes. The Indiana State Psychology Board got involved after that. They announced that they were going to investigate Jim's healing claims on the basis that he might have been peddling false medical information. And so Jim packs up his people and flees back to San Francisco, angry and humiliated. He comes back to Indy in December to try to patch things up. He gives a sermon where he criticizes fake healers who, unlike himself, healed for profit. And he told his audience that what they'd seen you know, out of him, these miracles of his, that was not a reason to give up on the medical profession, which was good and noble, but that wasn't enough. His critics told him, why don't you provide a sample of one of those cancers so that we can submit it to independent testing? And Jim refused. He said, you know, this was obviously a setup by his enemies to discredit his work. And, uh, you know, they said, your enemies, like, what are you talking about? Uh, you sound a little paranoid there, guy. This, the whole thing was a disaster. And so Jim's lawyer, Tim Stone, kind of the temple savior many times over, he gets the psychology board to drop the investigation, and the incident fades into the past for them, but not for Jim. I'll say it again, all frauds are paranoid. Jim always felt like, despite everything, despite all appearances, he was seated very precariously atop an unstable structure, and that the slightest crack could bring the whole thing crashing down. One person starts doubting or criticizing him behind his back, and if it's left unchecked, that one person becomes two, two becomes four, and at a certain point, the dam breaks, and overnight, he goes from being God to being a joke. That's how quickly things can happen when your whole program is based on perception. One day, you seem completely invulnerable, untouchable, and then the next day... The spell can break because everybody's kind of lying to each other a little bit about what they think. And the minute they realize that it's safe to kind of stop doing that, you know, it's just a critical mass and things can change very quickly. Any dictator, when they 
falter or feel exposed, somebody at the top of a system like that, anytime they falter, the first thought is always to worry about the loyalty of their own people. I think of Saddam Hussein in the 1990s, for example. After the Allied coalition drove him out of Kuwait in 91, and again after the U.S. bombing campaign in Iraq in 98, both times, same thing. Saddam launches a reign of terror against the civilian population, but he starts executing a bunch of his own generals and top officials, not so much for specific failures or alleged crimes they were supposed to have committed, just that he felt exposed. He was worried that people were looking at him after just getting punked by the U.S. and not really being able to do anything about it and just thinking he was weak, potentially vulnerable. All through the 1990s, in a similar vein, Saddam launched an Islamization campaign throughout the country, changing up after decades of his regime's repression of sectarian rivalry. All of a sudden, he starts playing himself up as a, as a Sunni leader and, and playing up the, the rivalry between Sunni and Shia to rally the Sunni people to, to his side. He starts framing threats to his regime as Zionist plots against the good Sunni Muslims of Iraq. He'd never done this before. And Saddam knew the power of uniting against a common enemy. During the first Gulf War, he started launching a bunch of Scud missiles at population centers in Israel, even though Israel wasn't even part of the war, under the theory that if he could provoke Israel into striking back, then it would become impossible for the other Arab regimes in the region to remain a part of the coalition against him because they couldn't be seen as being on the side of Israel. And we managed to talk Israel out of retaliating for that reason, diverted a bunch of British SAS out into the Iraqi desert to go hunt down and destroy the Scud launchers. But it was a clever move. Very clever move. You know, paranoid dictators like Saddam Hussein or Jim Jones, they don't go off some standardized handbook on how to deal with circumstances like this. They don't have to. When you're in the situation, this all seems very natural and obvious. Going back to the Indiana days, Jim had always feared and suspected plots against himself. And again, paranoia and narcissism go hand in hand. Yes, it's scary, but it's also kind of flattering to be at the center of someone else's hostile plot. But also, on top of that, a narcissist is not going to take responsibility when things go wrong. And so when they do go wrong, he goes out looking for external explanations, and that adds to the paranoia. You know, there's no doubt that Jim did believe he was the focus of hidden plots and enemies. But he also needed other people to believe that. And so he would manufacture situations to make sure that they did. Once... At a temple potluck, he jumped up out of his seat holding a sharp piece of glass, holding it over his head and shouting that some assassin had buried it in his food in an attempt to kill him. This is something that had been going on since his days in Indiana when he was working for integration back in Indianapolis. He would sometimes receive real letters and phone calls that were threatening from people who didn't like what he was doing. But there's also reason to believe that some of it was staged. One time when he claimed to be receiving anonymous phone calls in the middle of the night, people threatening him, heavy breathing, stuff like that, the police offered to put a trace on his phone to identify the culprit, but he said, no, 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 and then the calls just miraculously stopped that day. One time in Indianapolis, a shot was fired at his house, a gunshot, but the police said that the bullet, which had lodged into a wooden post on the porch, seemed to have come from the direction of the house rather than from the street toward the house. Jim needed the empathy and the clout that came with being victimized and targeted. 
He needed people to see that he was being threatened just as Martin Luther King Jr. had been threatened. I mean, who even are you as a civil rights radical if evil racists aren't actively trying to take you out, right? It also rallied his people around him and bound them all together into a tighter community. You know, going to church that Sunday and knowing that your pastor had survived an attempt on his life earlier in the week, that he was that committed and that important that they would target him, you know, that he faced threats and harassment in the name of the cause on a regular basis. But again, a lot of it was real. Things did happen. Back in Indy, he really had been threatened. He really did get threatening letters and phone calls. His wife really was spit on walking with their adopted black son. Things were happening. In Redwood Valley, which again was in California, but you know it was rural California 50 years ago. It was the boonies. A lot of the residents did not appreciate having a bunch of unknown black people and interracial couples showing up en masse into their town. Plus, they were marching against the war and for other left-wing causes. They didn't like that either. And so sometimes small things would happen, like finding bags of trash or rotten food splattered on the driveway or porch. People would sometimes shout racial slurs at church members from far away every once in a while. I don't want to make it out like it was burning Mississippi. It wasn't, but... Well, I mean, you know, there were a lot of hippies and just regular people in the area, but in a way that kind of annoyed the resistant people in the community even more. So things did happen. Sometimes things got a little more serious. There was one time when one of the temple's dogs was found killed and pinned to a wall with a spike through its neck. But as Jim Jones starts to slide down into the hole of paranoia, he needs his people to follow him down there. After the humiliation in Indianapolis, that failed healing show, he apparently felt like they needed a reminder of the seriousness of the struggle in which they were engaged and, and, and of the danger that they, and especially he, were in. From Jeff Gwynn, quote, On a pleasant day in Redwood Valley when Jones was present, members enjoyed a late afternoon potluck meal in the temple parking lot during the break between morning and evening services. It was a smaller congregation than those in the big cities, perhaps a few hundred followers. Jones, clad in a mustard shirt, mingled with his followers, seemingly in a fine mood, Almost everyone had the opportunity to shake Father's hand or share a warm hug with him. As evening approached and the sky began to darken slightly, the chatter and laughter were drowned out by loud booms, one or two or three of them. Witnesses could never agree. Someone shouted that these were rifle shots. People screamed and scattered. Jim Jones slumped onto the parking lot pavement. His yellow shirt suddenly splotched with red. He appeared to be limp almost certainly dead based on the amount of gore, but when Stephen Jones' pet dog went charging into the vineyard on one side of the lot, Jones somehow raised himself into a sitting position, pointed to the opposite end, and wheezed, It's over there! It's over this way! before collapsing again. Temple members racing after the dog reversed direction. Jones had pointed in the general vicinity of a hill, beyond which was a house owned by a Redwood Valley local known to be hostile toward the temple. But no movement could be discerned over the hill's crest, so everyone returned to the side of their stricken leader. Marceline Jones crouched over her husband. Jack Beam helped him to his feet. As the rest of the temple members stared, many of them sobbing, Marceline and Beam, along with a few others, helped Jones back into his house, adjacent to the church parking lot. The door was closed behind them. Outside, followers stood in anguished vigil, awaiting the inevitable news that father had died. Half an hour later, someone announced that the evening service was beginning as scheduled. 
People filed sorrowfully onto the porch. Perhaps this was when Father's death would be formally announced. Instead, Jones came striding to the front, followed by Beam and Marceline and the others who'd carried him off after the shooting. Tell them, he demanded, and they took turns rhapsodizing about the miracle that had just taken place. Father had healed himself. Jack Beam brandished the gory yellow shirt. Jones invited everyone to examine his chest. There was no wound, just a spot, something like a small indentation, where Jones said the bullet had torn through. He declared that this assassination attempt, which would have been successful but for his amazing healing power, proved that enemies with murder on their minds lurked everywhere. Jones also explained the gesture he'd made immediately after being shot, when he redirected those racing toward the vineyard. Stephen's dog had been right. The shooter really was in the vineyard, Jones said, but in his infinite mercy, he hadn't wanted his followers to tear the would-be assassin to pieces with their bare hands, which, in their rage and sorrow, they certainly would have done. So he sent them off in the opposite direction, allowing the shooter to escape with his life. The Redwood Valley Temple was sufficiently set apart from the rest of town so that no one else apparently heard the gunfire and contacted the authorities to investigate. This would never have been the case at the San Francisco or Los Angeles locations. The incident was kept in-house by the temple, a private, unforgettable manifestation of Jones' healing gift that amazed those who'd been following him longest. End quote. A temple nurse came on stage and testified that she had put her finger right through the hole in Jim's chest, the location of which matched the hole in the shirt. The bloody shirt itself was put into a glass case and held on display at the Redwood Valley Church for a little while, but a short time later the county sheriff heard about the shooting by word of mouth, and he came asking about it, and so the shirt and the case were taken down and put away in storage. Well, this did the trick. Word spread, and the people no longer had any question but that they were on the front lines of a war for social justice against a very dangerous enemy. The church bought some guns, which were given to a handful of men who would now attend a gym as bodyguards full-time. When he traveled in Los Angeles or San Francisco, the temple buses were now heavily armed with pistols and shotguns, and when Jim debarked from the buses, he was surrounded by an armed guard. And the men wore uniforms, leisure suits, shirts, ties, and berets, and they attended a gym like they were the Secret Service. More armed guards were assigned to guard the church. Floodlights were installed on the roof to light up the whole area at night. During church services, visitors were patted down and searched for weapons, tape recorders, or any other contraband before being allowed inside. While Jim preached his message, he would have up to 30 guards, many of them armed, patrolling the grounds outside and standing nearby within the temple, ready to protect him. One member began classes training about 50 people in karate twice a week. He even had a couple temple members who somewhat resembled him get similar haircuts and wear the same clothing and sunglasses to act as body doubles occasionally. Teenagers and students in the temple college program, they were assigned the task of protecting old people and small children in the event of catastrophe or attack. So their mandatory political readings were supplemented with the study of military tactics and survival skills and even the use of explosives and firearms. I mean, they, they were out in the woods around Ukiah running training scenarios. Jim Jones' people believed their leader now when he said that he was in danger, and they were ready to die to protect him. Hey. 
I remember your song. It used to keep me going because it was the truth. And let me tell you one thing. I'm not a teacher of but you put me out to stay. Help me regulate my mind or you and my family so I can get out to stay. But I know some of my people that others go, I felt like they're going to hate you. When they hate you, they hate me. I'll tell you the truth. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. You're the only father I have. You're the only family I have. I so give up my brother. I remember you fighting. You, you. you don't need to say. You don't need to say no more. I, I, I remember know. your fight. I love your father. I know you do. I really do. I remember when you sang. I never heard. Sing it for us right now. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. I came to father as I was. I'm a weary wound inside. He gave me rest and place and he has made me glad. And I never heard a man speak like this man before. Sing it. You can sing like socialists. brought us. It brought us on principle. It brought us on courage. And it brought us to the right place. And if we hold on, we'll make it. Never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man like this socialist man before. All the days of my life ever since I've been born. I never heard a man speak like this man before. Clap your hands, I've never heard a man speak like this man before. Never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born. Now, can somebody tell me thank you, Mother? You don't need to say any more. You prove it.